Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Eye of the Duck early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great-tasting dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms who are protecting over 400,000 acres of organic farmland and all the plants and animals that call it home. This is dairy you can feel good about. It's great-tasting, high-quality organic dairy ethically sourced from small organic family farms. To find Organic Valley Dairy near you, visit ov.coop. That's ov.coop. Open the five-bay doors, pal. Have we lost complete radio contact? Hello, Hell, do you read me? What's the story? You read me, Hell? Hell! I'm Adam Vollerich. And I'm Dom Nero. And this is a podcast about movies and the scenes that make them special. What David Lynch calls Eye of the Duck scenes. An Eye of the Duck is a moment or sequence in a film that defines the whole. Each week on our podcast, we explore a movie by finding the scene at its core. From the earliest days of the medium, filmmakers have transported us beyond Earth's atmosphere. In this miniseries, we'll be charting cinema's greatest space stories, the movies where science fiction, fact, and boundless imagination converge. Welcome to Eye of the Duck, a space odyssey. I think that doing doing this movie after Apollo 13 was maybe the greatest decision we've ever made. I was thinking the same thing, like two minutes into the film. I was like, man, we're good at programming. (laughs) (laughs) The original list was was not very programmed at all. We just kind of threw it all together and some of them just kind of lined up like this, right? Yeah, but then uh, then it became like you know, uh, eagle-eyed listeners will 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 notice by now that uh, this is essentially a series of double features. Yeah, and also like the way that these double features have been structured, especially you know our our previous double feature being the 1972 Solaris and then the 2002 Solaris. Yeah, and I feel like Apollo 13 and First Man are very similarly uh, contrasting in this way that it's kind of like an answer to like, it's kind of like filling in the blanks of what came before. And even the transition from going from the 2001, the space odyssey movies to the Solaris films, Solaris itself was, was an answer to 
the like inhuman uh, nature of, of 2001. I don't think this movie is in any way like coming after Apollo 13 or any like, I mean, I, I like Apollo well, 13 a lot, but well. I, I, yeah, I mean, I do think that uh, Damien Chazelle, who I think is just at the top of his game. In this, I think this, this is movie. his best film. Yeah. Uh, I, I truly like, this is it for me. I think that he is very much reevaluating the stories that we tell about heroic uh, men in the military and yeah. government and, and uh, maybe is the reevaluation that we need following like Apollo 13, which is ostensibly like propaganda. It is American yeah, can I give like, you a military quote from propaganda. Him? Yeah. I mean, th- this is this quote, it says it all. Uh, and, you know, he's talking about the this story. He says, it's so gilded in triumphalism in the modern perspective, almost as though it was such a shining moment in history that for a few years it was easy. I wanted to do away with all of that and make it seem as hard and as scary as it was. I love that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a different time now too, especially, you know, going from the nineties to what is this? 2018. Mm -hmm. I don't know that you can tell a story like Apollo 13 again today. Although what am I saying? I feel like (laughs) a lot of the greatest movies, I mean the, the most beloved like Academy movies often tend to be like, like, uh, you know, open government propaganda that pleases middle America. (laughs) Sure. But I mean, I I think another way of looking at it is like, like you're on the right track. It's definitely a generational thing. Like um, Ron Howard is a baby boomer and Damien Chazelle is a millennial. Yeah. Yeah. I I think, I think that kind of gives you uh, plenty of insight into how each of these filmmakers would view this period of American history. I also watching this kind of have had this jolting experience of like, I can't believe that this filmmaker, this guy, Damien Chazelle, like him, the guy that made this movie, that he is, he exists in this weird, like crossover space with this culture war shit with, I mean, like (laughs) even like within like, you know, the very like left snobby, like film community within there, like, Damien Chazelle has become like a controversial topic. Like liking him and his films is controversial. It's just kind of crazy to me. I mean, I don't want to like worship the guy, but like you watch this movie and you're like, this guy, this is the guy that people are like screaming about online. He seems like one of the good guys. Like I, yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think this film is, uh, is, is, is just absolutely uh, extraordinary in, in every way i this is my third time watching it i saw it uh in theaters in in imax which was mm-hmm. pretty unbelievable and then i, I watched it oh, when man. it first came to home video and i and i picked up the the blu-ray and i watched it again this time and i just i i can't believe this thing exists was made was made <laughs> as quickly as it was mm-hmm. when it was and no one gave a shit <laughs> yeah. like that is what like I think that like that in itself to me is like an indictment of all of film going culture that like yeah. this this film came and went with uh, the only you know the only real discussion of this film was on fucking Tucker Carlson when he's having a you know a hissy fit that the American flag isn't featured in shots of the moon like yeah I was just it. yeah I was reviewing some of the the controversies in in Chazelle's career and that being in there it's like. 
you watch this film not having even given a thought. Like, there's never even a second in your mind that's like, well, where's the American flag? Like, I mean, it's in here plenty. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, if they really want to get angry about this movie, which doesn't seem to be like what their rage was about, like, there is a lot of stuff that I'm sure would piss off a, uh, a right-wing American, like, you know, devout military uh, person yeah, in this but, movie. But like, they'll easily. never watch it and they'll, yeah. they'll never know. <laughs> I just, I don't need, I mean, I don't think Damien Chazelle needs, you know, anyone to defend him. Uh, although after Babylon, who knows what's going to happen with his career. Uh, I've also not seen Babylon. I'm, I'm looking forward to watching it. I, I uh, will, I will just, I'll plant my flag on the surface mm -hmm. of, uh, of the podcast and say that I am personally pro Babylon. Um, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm not going to say it's my number one film of, uh, of 2022. It, it certainly wasn't, but, uh, I think it is a, a worthwhile endeavor. I mean, we've mentioned on the show before how La La Land almost ruined our friendship. Um, <laughs> so I mean, even La La Land though, that's a, it's a film I have immense respect for my, I, I just, uh, it, it ends up not working for me because Damien Chazelle and I simply have completely different points of view on what it is to be a person that uh, makes things and mm. the the costs and, you know, the, the cost-benefit analysis of art history. We just mm. simply have completely different philosophies there. And as a result, it, it makes it very hard to connect with a film that explores his version of that philosophy. Sure. I, I think... I would be very surprised to hear anyone say like that he is not a, you know, technically a, a really well studied and, and profound, like brilliant artist. I mean, that, that's why I'm saying like watching this, it's surprising that this is the guy that there is so much controversy about. Cause this yeah. is the kind of filmmaker that like, I will go to see any movie he makes and Same. enjoy it. Uh, just because it looks like a fucking movie. Like, <laughs> thank God. Like there are still people like this making movies that still like look and feel like, you know, movies. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, he's one of those, those, those directors that's still like doing it the old fashioned way. I mean, maybe to a fault sometimes, like maybe I can see, uh, I mean, well, I'm going to bring this up later, but I, I think his obsession with the kind of classics that we grew up with and like the Scorsese's and, and uh, Coppola's, I feel like is very much part of his visual style. And sometimes it's like, does this sure. need to be like Michael Corleone right now? Like, does this, does it, <laughs> <laughs> like, it doesn't have to be that. Uh, but I mean, that is the, the smallest infraction for <laughs> know by my standards i just respect uh this movie and i respect him as a director and uh yeah i'm really interested to see if he will continue to have a career after all of this i hope so um honestly like i i don't think it would be the worst thing in the world for him to work with like a whiplash budget for his next film because oh, he, I'd love to see that. Because Whiplash, I think, is 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 really fantastic. And, you know, it, I, I think he has chosen to tell bigger and bigger stories uh, as his career has grown. And I think that's great and admirable. But I'm assuming he won't get placed in, you know, permanent director jail. Uh, but 
you know, it's anything's possible. But assuming he isn't and he gets to make another film, I'm sure it'll just be with a much lower budget. And I don't think that would be the worst yeah. thing in the world. I would like to see him working in that space again because he's so good at it. It's true. I mean, uh, he is kind of following in the footsteps of his his idols like Scorsese and like making a huge, you know, mm-hmm. blowout movie like Babylon and then needing to recalibrate in, in like an after hours yeah, you, sort you of think movie. we're going to get his I, after hours. <laughs> I would fucking love that. It looks like he, uh, 2018, they said Apple TV has a, has a, uh, drama series hooked up to him, but oh no, no, no. December, 2022 Chazelle, uh, signed a first look deal with Paramount pictures. There you go. I, I guess we'll see. You truly never know <laughs> with any announcement anymore. <laughs> That's for sure. Also, he is a, uh, you know, pimple-faced guy with uh, curly hair who grew up in New Jersey, so... I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's it's hard for a, me a running to... joke in our, in our group of friends is, oh, look, it's Dom. <laughs> <laughs> I got to meet him once. After a screening of Whiplash, I uh, had the very, very embarrassing situation where I, like being a young person going to a film screening, I was sitting in line with other people just like me and one of the guys was like really uh energetic and like amped up and and overzealous and i was telling him like yeah i'm so excited to see whiplash like you know i i uh, i have musicians in my family and i feel connected to this guy damien chazelle we both grew up in jersey um both like former musicians ourselves and then uh, and i'm hoping to like say hi to him afterwards and then after the movie that guy was like shoving me to the front of the line be like, talk to him, dude, talk to him. <laughs> oh my God. And then like we get there and, and Damien Chazelle's like standing there and the guy's like, this guy right here, like he really wants to like say, say hi to you. Oh no. I'm like, oh my God. All right. So this is ruined. So <laughs> never mind. <laughs> worst, worst way to be introduced to someone. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. That sounds really unpleasant. <laughs> but that's the thing with the, with him. I mean, he's he's only thirty eight, and you like you look yeah. at him and and like, wow, he's like he's like us, and yeah, but massively, massively successful. <laughs> what the fuck? Whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate, Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone, with three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, all in a single sugar free stick. Liquid IV is perfect for daily use before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, or on long flights. Basically, anytime you need a pick-me-up, however you hydrate. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com. Whether you're shipping 100 packages a month or thousands, ShipStation lets you automate routine shipping tasks and easily handle returns. Manage orders, print labels, compare rates, optimize every shipment, and automate delivery notifications with ShipStation's easy-to-use dashboard. Plus, you can access industry-leading discounted rates from USPS, UPS, DHL, and Global Post with discounts up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. 
Over 130,000 companies have grown their e-commerce businesses with ShipStation. And 98% of companies that stick with ShipStation for a year become customers for life. Optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Use promo code WONDERY today at ShipStation.com to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com promo code WONDERY. I mean, you make whiplash, you know, you get a bit of a blank check, you know. I love that movie. I want to watch that again. Yeah, great film. <laughs> All right, should we talk about production? Let's do it, because uh, this is this is quite the production. Uh, it's extremely cool. Are you sure? Yeah, be an adventure. First man to walk on the moon. That'd be something. We've chosen a job so difficult, requiring so many technological developments. We're gonna have to start from scratch. Only after we master these tasks do we consider trying to land on the moon. Neil, if this flight is successful, you'll go down in history. What kind of thoughts do you have about that? We're planning on the flight being successful. Do you question whether the program's worth the cost in money and in lives? You're down here and you look up and you don't think about it too much, but space exploration changes your perception. And it allows us to see things that we should have seen a long time ago. We have serious problems. We've got this under control. You're a bunch of boys. You don't have anything under control. All right. First Man, written by Josh Singer, based on First Man, A Life of Neil A. Armstrong by James R. Hansen. Directed by Damien Chazelle with cinematography by Linus Sandgren, known for No Time to Die, Babylon, American Hustle, and of course his Oscar-winning work on La La Land. And this is his follow-up to La La Land, right? So yes, two years later, he's in, he's in the money. Yes. And the film is edited by Tom Cross, who won an Oscar for his work on Whiplash. Mm. So he's, he's bringing his team back. The film stars Ryan Gosling, Claire Foy, Jason Clarke, Kyle Chandler, Corey Stoll, Patrick Fugit, Christopher Abbott, Kieran Hines, Olivia Hamilton, Pablo Schreiber, Shea Wiggum, and Lucas Haas. So many people are in this film. Yeah. <laughs> A real murderer's row. Yeah. It's like watching like Inception or something. It's like, hey, yeah. that's there's that guy. Like, Why is that guy only in here for like two seconds? Like, how the fuck did they get him? It's, it's because they're all... Um, they're all playing, you know, real people. And there are, mm-hmm. you know, this this Gemini mission that they're doing. Um, also really annoys me that they don't just call it Gemini. It's the same yeah, word. <laughs> they just pronounce it Gemini. I, I don't know. It must be a military thing. Where, yeah, like, maybe. You know, anyway, um, you know, they did like 10 of those Gemini missions. And so each one of them had like a different crew. And and, and that's why all these Got people it. are playing like the actual, in, you know, they didn't combine all the... Uh, all the astronauts into just, you know, Neil and Buzz. They, they really, uh, they cast them all. And this is also, I mean, yeah, just to put this in perspective, 
I mean, 2014, he comes in with Whiplash, which yeah. is like a, uh, I mean, it's just like a follow-up to his short film, right? It's like a... Right, so he, he did the short film Whiplash, and then he made the feature film Whiplash. And then there is actually another feature before that, um, Guy and Madeline on Park Bench, which is like oh, I've, I've black and white really mumblecore good. musical. Yeah, um, yeah I, I haven't actually seen that one. I'd um, like to see that. Yeah, I've heard that's awesome. But he's... I mean, by the time Whiplash comes around, he's not like, you know, the biggest uh, director ever, but all of a sudden he kind of puts J.K. Simmons on the map, right? Like right. He kinda we, like get re- the, we get the J.K. Simmons renaissance. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, does Simmons, does he win the he Oscar? He wins the Oscar, it? yeah. He, yeah. Gets, uh, he gets best supporting actor for that. Yeah. But so th- Giselle goes like from like relatively, you know, no notoriety at all to like pretty big deal director. And then... Well, just the the thing that you are you're skipping over is his uh, his screenwriting career. Oh um, yeah, that too. You know, he is a he's a writer of uh, of three beloved like horror movies. Um, or maybe not, maybe two out of three. I would say are beloved. But um, the Last Exorcism Part Two, which it gets made in 2013, Grand Piano, which stars Elijah Wood and, and John Cusack. And have you seen Grand Piano? No. Oh, it's you'd love list, it. It's, it's yeah, a really fun, that. tense thriller. And, uh, you know, uh, Elijah Wood plays like a concert pianist and he's got a, a sniper aimed at him by John Cusack. And if he makes like, if he makes one wrong note, then, you know, Cusack's <laughs> going to kill him. Uh, it's a, uh, it's a great, it's great it's fun. Great premise. Uh, and then he wrote 10 Cloverfield Lane, which is Dan Trachtenberg's directorial right. debut uh, and a fantastic film. Our beloved 10 Cloverfield Lane. Yeah. But yeah, so he's like a dude who is in in the game to a degree. But once La La Land hits, I I feel like then it's like, okay, this is like a fully formed, like this is someone who's probably going to be in the business for a long time and potentially be like a major, major player. Yeah, and, like, and, he, and he wins an Oscar for La La Land. For, he, wins, yeah. he wins Best Director. Like he just, you know, second, you know, second major feature. And there Crazy. It is. Yeah. And uh, he uh, he wins Best Picture until they said that. <laughs> actually, sorry, that was that year. Whoops, the daisies! Crazy, still to this day, so fucking strange that that happened. Yeah. So then, but both of those movies are like uh, music things. Like all the stuff he's made is like these, like uh, even Grand you know, Piano is uh, is rooted. Yeah, in that's music. true. Neo musicals or something. They're they're mm-hmm. it, like it is a very specific, uh, narrow kind of uh, creative output. So then I remember when First Man gets announced, he's like, Damien Giselle is going to do the Neil Armstrong movie. Like, what the fuck is that going to look like? Yeah. Also, I mean, if you're looking at at Giselle in Whiplash, his style is like very distinctly like you know city like you know spike lee or uh or martin scorsese it's like that kind of feel it's like this down-to-earth like cassavetes kind of stuff uh how what is that going to look like in space like well he does that well and then also la la land is this big sweeping you know kind of epic yeah, you know, yeah. hollywood musical and, right uh, yeah it's it's amazing to to see him uh deconstruct his own style and and just do something completely different um and we'll, we'll we'll talk about through this how how he comes to dis- the decisions to make it that way. But I think this is the first one of his career that's really like the big test of like okay, you've made these two things that clearly seem like your like long term passion projects or something. Right. What do you when you're like a director for hire here? Like, what are you you know? 
I, what is that? I, I wouldn't look call like? him a director for hire, um, but but this is perhaps yeah you're yeah you're right. This isn't one that has originated with him in the sense that mm-hmm. a it was a a book, b it's yeah. based on real life, uh, and c he was not the first person to right. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let me let me tell you. Uh, okay. Yeah. Let's go. In, in in March fourteenth of two thousand three, it is announced that Clint Eastwood. Uh, has acquired yeah, the rights to this that. film uh, and is planning to produ- produce and direct it, uh, although not not act in it. Um, and yet I still imagine. could not help but imagine, <laughs> get off my moon. <laughs> Him as, as Neil Armstrong yeah. as a young man. Yeah. And he's like 96 years old. Yeah, perfect. Um, but this, you know, the, the development stools out and, uh, you know, we hear nothing about it. But then in uh, in early 2015, after he has finished uh, Whiplash, he's asked by uh, producers Whit Godfrey and, and Isaac Klausner if he wants to work on the film. And initially, he doesn't want to. He says, I don't know what clicked, but at some point I was just like, wow, how have I taken it for granted that in order to have the success story we grow up with of people walking on the moon, people had to turn fantasy into reality and completely put their lives on the line in order to do that. How do you get from 1961 to 1969 from barely getting into orbit to walking on the moon. It's 32 times the size of the Earth from the Earth to the moon. It's an insane magnitude. You look at it on a plot and it's mythological. Suddenly it was like Orpheus going into Hades. You're going where humans are not supposed to go. And everything about the natural world is telling you that this is not where humanity is supposed to go. And they did it. And so it's not until he has that realization that he is even remotely interested in in making this film. Yeah, and that's a really great way to spell out our series here too. Yeah. <laughs> and the kind of I'm I have kind of been shocked a little bit along this uh this this journey here <laughs> through these space movies of I mean how kind of natural space is as like like it is it is of nature like it is just this natural space up there. And I think a lot of times, you know, watching movies, it's made out to be this cruel and like unaccepting, like merciless, like zone of like horror or something. But really, it's just like a naturally occurring like void. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, he's the the absence of, 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 of everything. Yeah. He's right to point out like how mythological it kind of is. Yeah. And that like it is no different than like, you know getting to the top of Mount Everest or something. It just happens to be like beyond the earth. Uh, okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> what do we, what do we have next? Yeah. I could keep going about that. <laughs> so he writes a 72 page treatment and wants to bring on another writer because he realizes that this is a story that, you know, because it's based on reality and because it is so rooted in science and scientific method and, you know, physics and aerodynamics, all these things that he needs intensive research. And so he he brings in Josh Singer and Singer had just finished working on The Fifth Estate and Spotlight. And both of those are very much research heavy films. So Singer then starts outlining the film and decides uh, to begin the film with Armstrong's daughter, Karen, uh, passing away from cancer. He says, the first piece was really nailing down where you're going to start 
because Neil has a whole career before he gets to NASA. Neil's first love was planes. He was a taciturn guy, but he would talk a blue streak about the X-15. And there were some pretty wild X-15 flights, like the one that we depict uh, that happened right as his daughter was struggling with a malignant tumor and kind of going downhill. So that felt like an interesting place to start. Yeah. I mean, maybe this is a good point to bring up uh, what is going on in this movie for people who haven't seen it. So uh, the opening of this movie is this really kind of breathtaking sequence of Armstrong in the uh, the X-15. Uh, it looks like he's trying to achieve like a a speed, right? A certain so amount, I think he's, like, he's trying to get into... Uh, and just pass the atmosphere and do like a low oh, orbit, low orbit uh, fl- flight, essentially. Oh, like and, the, like the vomit comet we've been talking about, right? Except that the vomit comet does these parabolas within the atmosphere that creates the zero g effect. Oh, I'm sorry. Via speed, the uh, this this is going truly yeah. like right beyond the atmosphere and floating just on it. Right. Um, this is like the billionaire comet. This is uh, yeah, yeah <laughs> right, kind that's of what I meant yeah. To say like yeah, what what Jeff Bezos is like is doing. <laughs> uh, but what happens here in this sequence is he bounces off of Earth's atmosphere and there's a moment where like he that the plane like points towards like the vacuum of space. Yeah. And they're being like Neil like you've you're uh, where are you like you're <laughs> you've gone beyond the pull <laughs> of of our planet here and, and, and you, you wonder, see the, yeah. the the distance ticking up on the display and it's like yeah. if if he doesn't do something he's just going to shoot off into the void and never come back. And then somehow he manages to kind of like bounce off and then get back into the atmosphere. Oh, which is so cool. It's an incredible yeah. incredible sequence. There's this moment where like Half the screen is uh, is the Earth, and half the screen is is is, is just the void. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, he's on the tipping point between life and death. Basically, it's it's incredible. But as you said, uh, so I mean, the beginning brings up this this opening setup that uh, his daughter has a malignant tumor, and when he gets down to Earth the people he's working with are kind of being like, his head's not in the game. Like what's going on with him? We might have to ground him. This is too dangerous what he's doing. But the other side of it is people being like, well, he managed to get back into right through the atmosphere. (laughs) Like no one's ever done that before. Like that's pretty remarkable. Even if he is distracted because his daughter is like tragically dying. Right. And so, uh, where we are left in the opening kind of seeing like a family man who is, you know, passionate about his job and passionate about like pushing forward, uh, technological, you know, uh, knowledge and, and breakthroughs for, uh, the American government and military. But he is a little bit trepidatious about like fully committing himself to his work because of his family and his sick daughter, I mean, he's asked to man one of these next big missions and he says, well, maybe, you know, once my daughter gets better, I could do something like that. Uh, and and then, then the next scene yes. is, is her funeral. Yeah. Um, and he loses his daughter. And then from there we get like the Neil Armstrong that uh, makes right. I mean, from, from like the, the day after her funeral, he says to his wife, I think I'm going to go to work. Yeah. And, and immediately starts working towards becoming the first man on the moon. 
So after realizing that, you know, the, the film has to begin that way, Singer realizes the, the sort of like logical midpoint is that uh, Gemini 8 mission, which is where they, um, you know, they, they managed to make the dock in, in space. Uh, they, <laughs> they accomplished that, that docking maneuver. Uh, and he says, I was just so blown away by the fact that the second group of astronauts, two of them die, and they happen to be Neil's closest friends, Elliot and Ed. They both die within the calendar year. And in the middle of that, Neil goes up only two weeks after Elliot's death and he almost dies. That is a crazy year. So that is the center. Ed is the end of the second act and Elliot is sort of the lead up to the midpoint and it all sort of fell into place. It is just a like brutal fucking story. Yeah. And, you know, all true. <laughs> the deaths here uh, just... I mean, we all know this about space travel and about like being an astronaut. We all we all know about like the Challenger explosion, and we all know that there is so much tragedy. Yeah, but it's I don't just know one of the that riskiest you, things you can do. Yeah, I mean, of course, that's always sort of part of it in these space movies that that we're that we're seeing here. I mean, like space, you shouldn't do this. Don't do this. Yeah, space is not a place that uh, that humans should go to, and you know, obviously that's a big thing about space movies, but I think this is the only one of all of these astronaut movies that I've seen that really kind of addresses like, this is like a extremely traumatic, like traumatizing career to have. Oh yeah. You're not only losing like your like co-pilots, but also like, they're like only friends. I mean, who else can they like yeah, relate it's, to it's, than the it's other the men? Only that people go through you're this. friends with, and you're yeah. also watching their families grieve their yeah, loss. Gro- you know? Yeah, man, it's brutal, and it's yeah. it is just uh, it's tragic to see what this man saw and what he like went through to get you know to the moon. All of the death that was left in that wake is, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it it begins to feel a bit like when you are watching uh, Zodiac, where mm-hmm. like scene after scene, you know, um, everyone around uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character, I, I can't remember the, the, the guy's name, but everyone around him is either, uh, you know, succumbing to like obsession or disease or, uh, you know, uh, just just disappearing from his life because he is... Mm-hmm too devoted to trying to figure out who the zodiac is like it feels like the same kind of thing the this sort of obsession and this drive forward and and the sort of like i will never stop and at the same time like my i'm well aware that i am you know burning myself in the process yeah you're right i mean this is very much like a story about a man who is addicted to his work <laughs> sure you know I at mean, the end but, of the day but, this is like uh <laughs> Like, so, I mean, like so many movies are about like, you know, one, yeah. one person's passion, you know, takes, it's very, very much like whiplash in that way. Like, I mean, this is the, the fourth week in a row that we're covering a film that is men will literally go into the vacuum of space before they go to therapy. <laughs> oh my God. This one truly, truly <laughs> This is, is the one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. Uh, so around November of 2015, Singer uh, finishes his his script and they have a 150-page uh, first draft, uh, which would clock in around two hours and 30 minutes. He then works with Chazelle, who is in post-production on La La Land, to uh, whittle the script down. And in total, Singer does 16 drafts of the film. Wow. Damn. Yeah. A lot of revision. 
So in in early 2015, uh, Ryan Gosling actually goes and meets with Chazelle about potentially working on First Man. And during the meeting, the subject gets around to La La Land. And he, of course, ends up being in La La Land. And then, of course, feeds right into First Man. (laughs) How funny. Yeah. It's like, oh, you're doing a musical? I'd rather be in that. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds fun. Yeah. This is towards like the the end, I feel like, of the Gosling renaissance. I mean, I I guess, yeah, because I, I think after this he kind of slows down. But I do I do just want to take a moment to just say very loudly, like Gosling is like our best silent actor. I think he's so I've I mean I've I've always he's loved great. him. He's always he's always good at this kind of thing. I think this is the this is the pinnacle of like the silent gosling performance is is this film. Yeah, and it's another kind of really big bummer about this film's legacy and its release of I I mean I kind of think of it as like an afterthought of of that run of gosling movies. Like he's, he will not like when, you know, when you're thinking about this era of his career and all of those great fucking movies he made, I don't know that like the random one where he plays Neil Armstrong is, is often, you know, thought about in there. But I mean, that's uh, the thing. This shouldn't be that random movie where Ryan Gosling was Neil Armstrong. It kind of is right. That, I mean that at yeah. the end of the day, I feel like that is kind of the uh, reputation that this ended up having. But if this had come out maybe in a different like time or from a different director or something, I, I I mean I feel like this this should be like a a movie that we you know remember very fondly and talk about a lot. But I agree. I mean I I think it is to the film's detriment that it comes out you know not long enough after La La Land, and La La Land still yeah. has the kind of like awkward stink on it of uh of the just the weirdness of that oscar ceremony and i think it 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 takes the wind out of the sails of this and i don't know i'm sure there are other reasons why why people just didn't go and see it but it 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 just blows my mind yeah that's a good point i guess la la land kind of overshadows a lot of these movies around this time uh and yeah i i don't i don't know if this one gets like another another go at it maybe sometime we shall see maybe we can some theaters should let us do uh just a they should just let us screen every film in this series in (laughs) in order including this (laughs) gosling and many of the other actors playing astronauts uh visited nasa and got to learn in a more hands-on way about the apollo 11 mission John Berthnell was actually cast in the role of Dave Scott, but unfortunately had to drop out uh, because his daughter had a seizure. Um, thankfully, she made a full recovery, but this led to Bernthal being replaced by Christopher Abbott. Oh, okay. And just, uh, yeah, I just see to Bernthal be clear, that's, that that's the yeah, that's the 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 astronaut that goes up with Armstrong right. in the uh, Gemini Eight mission. Production knew that Armstrong had a cabin in Juniper Hills and that it was still standing, but they didn't know the address. And while searching for the cabin, a crew member asked a man driving by who turned out to be the person currently living there. Um, and that man gave production access to the cabin and allowed them to take reference photos for uh, for production design. Oh, nice. Wow. Yeah. I'm fascinated about like, you know, what Armstrong thinks of this sort of uh, take on his life and him as a, as a person. wonder if this is pretty much the same you know, uh, 
angle that the book has. I wonder, uh, but I imagine probably not. <laughs> Principal photography uh, finally gets going in Atlanta, Georgia in November of 2017. And Chazelle begins filming with two weeks of rehearsal with Neil and his family. Um, the flashback material we see while Neil is on the moon is actually all from this rehearsal period. Um, and the footage was actually never meant to be in the film. Uh, but uh, during post-production, they realized that it made sense to have it uh, during that sequence. <laughs> That's funny. So yeah. they're just like walking around rehearsing, pretending to be a little family. And you know, Yeah, which, you know, is... Uh, is is a useful thing to do, and you know, I, I remember uh, another film from kind of this this era, uh, Blue Valentine. That's another oh, one yeah. where where Gosling, you know, and Michelle Williams, they like live in a house with their like on screen daughter for like several weeks, and and just like live as a family and, and, and in character. So uh, like I, I was Nathan not surprised Fielder to learn that he did this. Yeah, yeah, it's the Fielder method. Yeah. <laughs> Gosling apparently used the term the moon and the kitchen sink while the film was in development to describe the dichotomy between Neil's NASA missions and his home life. And this became a phrase that Chazelle used a lot during production. The moon and the kitchen sink. Mm -hmm. You know, the moon and everything else. I see. Yeah. Chazelle brought uh, cinematographer Linus Sandgren uh, uh, back on from La La Land. Uh, the pair had discussed originally shooting the entire film on 16mm uh, in the hopes of achieving a gritty look uh, to mirror how dangerous the mission was. Uh, mm-hmm. This was, uh, you know, inspired by documentary films and the cinema verite format, uh, you know, wanting to directly contradict what they had done in La La Land. Uh, they realized, of course, they could not use 16 for the entire film as it did not fit the uh, larger-than-life quality of NASA. Uh, <laughs> Sangren said, Doing tests, we realized 16mm doesn't really hold up in big wide shots. So going to NASA and the big shots in that environment, it felt like we wanted to stay in the gritty raw realm, but 16mm isn't sharp enough for that. So what they end up doing is using 16mm for most of the film, uh, especially the shots inside the spacecraft in order to capture the cramped and claustrophobic environments and then 35 millimeter film for uh, shots that required a higher level of detail. Um, and then when we get to the the moon sequence, I'll talk about how they shot that using yet another format. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's worth noting that each of these formats are uh, more expansive than the last. So 35 millimeter has a wider right. field of view than, than 16 millimeter and, and IMAX has a significantly more expanded field of view than than 35 millimeter and with each and with the expansion of that field of view you also get more detail when i think about this movie now the images that come to mind are like black like foyers like you know like a dark dark like living room yeah or like men who are like their white collars are illuminated and nothing else in like a a den of a suburban house yeah and I'm, I was so like struck by that visual approach to this movie. And, and it's, it's like, it's very like, it's, it's very loud. Like it's very like noticeably like dark, high contrast uh, yeah. shadow stuff happening here. And, and it, it calls attention to itself enough that like, I'm thinking a lot about like, why did he choose to shoot it this way? What other movies look like this? And then it dawned on me, like, this is like the Godfather. Like he <laughs> he went like the Gordon Willis like yeah. Godfather thing. So it's the second week in and, a row that we've got Willis uh, Willis style. And and Neil Armstrong is Michael Corleone. Like he yeah. is 
he is a cold, isolated man who is detached from the people he loves. Yeah. And addicted to his work and his need for, you know, for, uh, for, I mean, in the Godfather, it's dominance. In this, it's like the superiority or the, 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 the goal of being above, you know, up, up, you know, on the moon. And that's just so fucking crazy to me that Damien Chazelle like arrives to this movie and, and he's like, all right, this is the Godfather. So like, <laughs> let's start with that. <laughs> I mean, I, I love it because the, does that read for you though? I mean, do you, do you oh, have yeah, the same? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, okay. I mean, I had similar, I had similar thoughts, especially coming from Solaris from, from last week, but, but, or from two weeks ago. Um, but, but also the, the other thing I, I took away from, from, decision and I, I hope this doesn't step on your scene or your reading at all mm-hmm. but um there are so many shots inside his home where the the image becomes uh it's not just like oh it's dark in this part of the frame and light in this part of the frame and it's high contrast mm-hmm. it's that specifically he's framed in like he's framed by darkness so like there'll be an equal amount of darkness on the left side of the frame and the right side of the frame or the top on the frame and the bottom of the frame mm-hmm. in such a way where it feels like he's telling you like of course this guy is going to go to space because he's been living in the void the entire time. Hmm. You know, um, it's, it's just so clever on, on, on all those levels. Yeah. He, he has a really good time. I feel like with like the darkness of space and how that manifests in, you know, earthly life. Yeah. And I love that. I, I mean, that's just, that's the first of the films that we've seen so far in this series, I think is like, thinking about the void of space in that way. Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, this is the the things we're talking about right now, framing him like this, making him seem like this small, sad little man in the dark. This is all yeah. part of Chazelle's, um, you know, philosophy towards making the film. He says, um, with someone like Armstrong, both the challenge and the appeal to me of doing a movie about him was that it's hard to get more iconic or more mythic than him or his exploits as a subject matter. Hmm. The thinking was, what if this was actual authentic documentary footage and we could use that style to maybe de-glamorize, demythologize this part of the history? Yeah. And I mean, thinking of The Godfather, like as much as that is known as this like, you know, uh, like heroic, like gangster film that people have posters of these gangsters on the wall. I mean, if you actually watch that movie, like it's the same thing. It's like taking that noir, like action gangster thing and totally stripping it of its glamour and like, you know, leaving Michael Corleone, like sitting there with a wet towel on his face, like looking like complete shit and, uh, you know, alone. It's like this, like elegant, like, (laughs) like, deep and uh and sorrowful like loneliness that i think is all over this movie too with yeah with, with gosling i mean that ending in the uh in in isolation in the quarantine zone when him and it's claire Foy see each other it's that same like yeah it's the same as what you're saying is like a man who is is kind of trapped in this void yeah Sandgren said, we felt that by committing to that kind of language, shooting handheld with a zoom was the most immersive way of telling the home life story because it would signal that you are there for real, like in a documentary. Then when you go into the spacecrafts with them, it would feel more scary than if you were actually just watching actors. We believed if we had proper crane shots or dolly shots, it would have signaled it was more a movie that you were watching. And it's great. They really commit to the bit. Like... That's why watching these space sequences are, are some of the most like tense moments that, you know, that 
you're going to have, I think, in this miniseries of... Yeah. Because it, it, it is not tense in the way that, like, 2001 is tense, or maybe 2001 is a bad example. It's not like a... It's not like movie tension. It's like... Yeah. Like... It's real this, is a re- this is a yeah. real person in this fucking like tinfoil pod. And, and you're like, what the fuck, man? It's because <laughs> like it's, they- it's such a naturalistic way of, of telling yeah. a story. And it is just so funny that like, let's leave Babylon out of the conversation for the mm-hmm. moment. But if I tell you, just say you've never seen a Damien Giselle film. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I've got three films here. Here's one about a, uh, a New York City like drum student at, uh, at like Manhattan College or NYU, wherever it is he's at. Um, here's one about um, an actress and a, and a jazz musician in LA trying to make it and they do some singing. Uh, and this is one about Neil Armstrong going to the moon. Which of the three do you think will be shot with the most naturalistic language? Like you would not say the one where Neil Armstrong goes to the fucking moon. That's true. That's so funny. And because he really sets out with his his very new career here still. He, he's still like a fairly new filmmaker. Uh, yeah. He sets out with Whiplash with this kind of high voltage, like, uh, like you know, Martin Scorsese. Uh, like just so much energy, just like, yeah. you know, this guy, if like much like the character in the film, it feels like the film itself is trying to push itself into oblivion. You know, like that's how fucking energized that movie is. Yeah, it's that very like Thelma Schoonmaker, like uh, mm-hmm. supercharged editing. And uh, it is in this movie too, sometimes. Like you, you get yeah. that energy, especially in these tense moments. And that's what's part of what's so fucking cool is like, oh, like when Damien Chazelle like does a big action scene or a big, you know, uh, set piece, like like one of these scenes, like then he becomes like whiplash Damien Chazelle. And then (laughs) normally he, it's, uh, I love it. Yeah. I I love exploring where he's going with his career. Uh, I'm looking forward to watching Babylon. Yeah. I think you'll like it. So production does then decide that when it's time to shoot the moon, they're going to use IMAX 70 millimeter film. Sangren said, it's a surreal world, the moon, like the planet of the dead. With the silence first and then the music, everything changes. It gets so unfamiliar from what we've been seeing. So we went to the ultimate opposite, IMAX 70 millimeter. <laughs> Which, it makes sense. And, and Chazelle sort of, he says a similar thing. He says, it felt like that 16 millimeter cinema verite could be a way to unify the language of the film. And also at the same time, set up a contrast with the moments where we do finally going into the expanse of space on the moon. We switch from shooting 16 millimeter to shooting the polar opposite, which is IMAX. It was about setting up those contrasts that we knew we could pay off at the end. And these uh, different uh, formats he's shooting in, they're not changing aspect ratios or... They right? do. They do. They well, do? The, the 16 millimeter and the 35 millimeter are all in a 239 aspect ratio. And then the okay. the stuff that's shot in IMAX, if you saw it in an IMAX theater, is in proper oh, it, full it IMAX ratio. And if you watch it in, on home video, uh, it, it fills up to the 16.9 of your of your widescreen television. Wow. I didn't notice. Uh, it's funny, though, the idea of uh, a 16 millimeter film being shown in an IMAX theater. I watched it I mean, at the sh- Lincoln Square IMAX. It was yeah. fucking amazing. And it looked great. That's 16 it millimeter. It looks, wow. That's yeah, so it cool. looks stunning. Yeah. I mean, also just like all these launch sequences, all these different space flights he does. 
what do you I mean they it's crazy to see a shaky handheld close-up of neil armstrong's eyeballs with like you know a couple <laughs> of buttons reflected in the visor in imax my god yeah with your sh- your seat like shaking uh as the as as the ship it feels like it's falling apart it's uh it's, it's quite the experience one of the reasons why Chazelle wants to shoot in this verite style is so that he and Sangren could be uh, completely spontaneous and come up with shots while they were on set. This then meant that all of the extras, all of the, the actors in the film who are playing characters who seemingly weren't going to have lines, had to have dialogue written for them uh, because he wanted to shoot 360. And if he accidentally like landed on someone in the frame, they had to be able to do something uh, mm-hmm. to justify the camera landing there. So he said, we had this rule on set where basically everything had to be 360, which can be tricky for a period film. It meant no matter where the camera turned or what room an actor decided to go into, it had to be lit. It had to be obviously correct set design and cleared of any equipment. That's how we did mission control. I remember that was one place it was tricky to make work. So for example, every desk, every flight controller, and there are 20 to 30 flight controllers. Yeah, in the there's scene. a lot of people in there. Yeah. They each had to have their own private script that would walk them through the entire scene. So they always had something real to be saying so we could be shooting wherever we wanted. We could move <laughs> the camera over to the flight director at any given moment and they would be saying what they would be saying at that time. It was never planned. Okay, we're just going to shoot this person or just this person. Everything was fair game. Wow. Yeah. It's like some weird, like immersive sh- theater shit or something. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> like, yeah. You could be in that room and just like be in mission control, like for real. Like, yeah. It's like being like at sleep the, no more. If the something. camera lands on you, you know, <laughs> so funny. at this point in the scene, this is the thing that you should be saying. <laughs> like, amazing. And uh, Singer wrote 40 pages of additional material just for those mission control actors. And most of it isn't even in the film. Because it's wow. just it's just the glimpses of of what they're saying when the camera lands on a specific person. I mean, I am sure it's hard to like extract a ton of really uh, compelling you know drama from a mission control like setup because it is just like a bunch of dudes like just sitting in chairs in front of fake computers. <laughs> like I imagine like that's probably hard to like block and like, and mm-hmm. make feel like alive. So I, I would assume that like all of them having scripts of their own and, and, you know, and like motivations and charged everything they do, it's got to pay off. It's got, that. Yeah. it's probably why those scenes feel like so real. I mean, those yeah. scenes are great in this movie. They're, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, can't praise it enough basically just every scene just fucking rips uh and for the scene where uh neil is testing the the lunar lander uh you know not not the actual one but the uh like the the simulation vehicle that he's bouncing around on land yeah um and production basically built a full-size version of that vehicle and they hung it they hung it from wires on a crane and that's how they controlled it uh and so he's just in this thing that's being jerked around by oh my god yeah and for the shots where he drops down to the ground and is dragged like you know by the the string of his parachute uh gosling is doing his own stunts oh wow yeah love to hear that i mean he is a stunt man from uh from drive so it makes sense. that's right <laughs> <laughs> uh 
Uh, Chazelle and Sangren did not want the VFX in the film to be distracting. Uh, Chazelle said he, he took inspiration from, from Chris Nolan's Interstellar, uh, which of course favored, uh, you know, an early version of like, you know, the LED volume tech essentially where, uh, you know, they're just using these, these large LED screens instead of, uh, instead of green screen or blue screen. Uh, and this gave an in-camera approach to the effects and allowed Chazelle to capture subtle details such as the reflections in Armstrong's helmet. You know, I've been thinking about this. I hate to say it, but I think Chazelle could do Batman Begins, but uh, Nolan could not do Whiplash. <laughs> I will say. I think that's true. But there's also no universe where I would see <laughs> Nolan attempting any of the films that Chazelle has made. I mean, except for First Man, right? Like, Except for First Man, but even yeah. then, like, Nolan would want to do the mythic version. True, but this is like the interpersonal, like truly moving stuff that is often missing from Nolan films, at least for that me. That is correct. Yeah, Giselle I feel like- is good at this person-to-person stuff. Yeah, I don't think that Nolan's first man looks like Apollo 13. I think that Nolan's first man feels like Alien. And I, yeah. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't mean yeah. like the movie Alien. Yeah. But I mean, I feel like it, it, it would feel like spending time with an alien. You know, it would be so, so mythic and removed yeah. from humanity. Uh, you know, I think that's I mean, where that's, it would go. That's actually kind of what I'm expecting to see in Oppenheimer, right? Yeah, like, I, 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 I think that's I a really good call. It, yeah. Uh, I mean, pointless to, to compare these two very brilliant filmmakers, but I'm only pointing that out that like, yeah, Chazelle has only made uh, four movies, right? Uh, well, five, including that uh Guy that first one yeah. yeah and we have yet to see like where his career is gonna go it seems like he is kind of like not gonna do like like what a filmmaker like ryan coogler did and like okay i'll I'll dabble in some of this uh some of this uh this franchise stuff and like do it i'll do it but i'll like do it in my own way uh right. doesn't seem like he's interested and but we have yet to see like a big kind of blockbuster kind of thing from Chazelle like will he make well you see uh you know Babylon I feel like is his blockbuster (laughs) really all right man (laughs) I gotta watch it (laughs) I mean this this is a blockbuster oh we're watching it totally is that's true it's just like it's a blockbuster that's shot like uh you know what like one of those like uh Albert Maisel's documentaries yeah (laughs) yes yeah (laughs) for the x15 the Gemini 8 and Apollo 11 sequences, full-scale practical crafts were built by production designer Nathan Crowley. Uh, so they built, you know, fucking spaceships, basically. Uh, or at least the, you know, f- full-size full sets of the uh, of those three uh, crafts. And uh, those would then be shot against a curved 35 feet by 60 feet uh, LED screen uh, with the actors uh, and the crafts on a six-axis gimbal. Wow. So kind of, you know, so they're really shoving the actors in these little pods, shaking them around and then building the, you know, the, the night sky behind them. It's a way to do it. I mean, Nolan always does his stuff like that too, right? Yeah. It's so, I I really do feel like you can see the difference when it's done this like quote unquote practical way, right? Yeah. Well, or at least in camera. Yeah. That's what I mean. VFX supervisor Paul Lambert said the effects had to be subtle and shot in a particular way to make it feel like footage from the day. 
Anything that felt like heavy VFX would have completely taken you out of the story and be glaring out at you. It was decided that shooting our spacecrafts against an LED screen was the best option to capture as much in camera as possible. With the various crafts in the movie, we tried to stick to a simple philosophy. Depending on the size of the craft in frame is when we would design the shot to either use a full-scale practical, miniatures, or a full CG version. Whatever the use of CG is in this movie, however it's blended in, it's not noticeable at all. I mean, it, it is very seamless in that the bulk of this movie really does look 100% real. Not to say that like CG cannot replicate real life, but you know, still these days, like you can watch movies and be like, oh, well, that's, you know, it looks good, but it's clearly computer generated. I don't right. feel that a lot in this movie. It is, it, it feels so real. That's partially why it's so scary in some moments. Yeah, I mean, they they commit so hard to this cinema verite aesthetic that mm. for the effects to be done really any other way, it would stand out to you. You know, you would you would you would feel the seams. I think kind of immediately. So doing it like this, it, it does blend it all in a way that feels really seamless and 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 as you say, it feels very real. Yeah. Um, this does mean that uh, the VFX company they hire, DNEG, uh, they had to fully render. You know everything in advance you know uh which is a at the time at least was incredibly unconventional uh but it but it gave chazelle the freedom to not be constrained by like a vfx shot list you know uh, and allowed him to be spontaneous with coming up with shots um yeah they fully rendered the environments before you know they went and shot the thing um and so lambert said using 90 minutes of content that was created at dneg we were able to create a pseudo full three-dimensional world in camera. We rendered the full 360 degree spherical image that they gave us to the greatest flexibility on the day. The playback system allowed for interactive rotation and color grading as we film. So this is essentially the kind of thing they're doing with the volume where you, you render the environment, you have a motion tracker on the camera, and as the camera is moving, the image on the volume is changing. Um, and they're doing it here, but you know, I, I think I, I'm not certain to what degree the effect is fully rendered when it comes to the volume. I, I believe that with some of the stagecraft stuff that they do on like Mandalorian, it is fully rendered sometimes, and then other times it is like near final, and then they touch it up with CG after the fact. But in this, they it's just they 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 had to commit to being perfectly fully rendered uh, in order to maintain that verite aesthetic. Hmm. I always wonder. If any time they shoot in the volume or these spaces, if after the fact they regret that they didn't just use a green screen, because I mean, what the what the volume is essentially doing is allowing you to to get a lot of the stuff in camera, right? Like you you, you get it in camera, and then you get um you, because these the LED screens themselves are uh, able to become so bright, you can use them as light sources as well. So if you put the sun as part of the design in what is going up in the the volume, it's bright enough that it can be used as one of your lights, you know? Um, and, so, and and even if you're not using it as like the actual light source, using it to, you, you're going to match the colors and the, and the direction with your light sources. So you get more accurate, you know, feeling uh, images from it. What I'm saying though, is that like a lot of these Marvel movies, you hear about like, you know, we didn't decide that, like, you know, uh, Captain Shitface was going to be in this movie. 
until, uh, you know, <laughs> like a year after production. So we put him in there cause they can do that. Cause they shoot it all on a green screen. Right. Uh, I'm, I wonder if there is a degree of, uh, <laughs> green screening into these uh i'm sure there's i'm sure there's in, in that situation you could do additional compositing to add elements to the thing um of captain shitface <laughs> i'm not gonna say that you're not gonna get me to say those words in that sequence in that tone the other thing i i i sent that to you a few days ago uh epic games who i think owns or created the unreal engine the fortnite yeah. company they they were showing off their volume for the game website, IGN.com. And they, they, they showed up this fucking crazy thing where they had a prop. It was a prop flashlight that they gave Mm -hmm. to one of the the actors or whatever. And it is, it's, it's a totally like non-functional device. It's just like, you know, a block that the, that the person is holding that uh, is painted to look like a flashlight and when they click the flashlight button, the volume, uh, you know, lights up a little orb on the wall. And since mm-hmm. everything is motion tracked, it works like a flashlight. Yeah. <laughs> but it's actually like, I mean, it's kind of crazy to think that like you couldn't just bring a fucking flashlight in there. Like you had to go through this like weird like back end <laughs> route to uh, <laughs> to like create a false flashlight. But some of the technology that they can do in these spaces is just like it's it's, it's pretty incredible wild. yeah uh, it's it's amazing to see how how it continues to be improved upon and, and implemented um but yeah i mean i i watched this this cool behind the scenes thing with this uh this dp uh matt workman where he he's doing like a an unreal engine volume test and mm-hmm. he's got like a guy on a on an actual motorcycle just kind of like in the middle of the room pretending to drive it and then he's like all right, so we want the light to actually be coming from over here. So I'm just going to move the sun across the sky, and he's just dragging Whoa. the sun across the, uh, you know, across oh the across God, the volume, and it's just changing the direction of the key light. And then he's like, and you know, of course, we want that classic golden hour look. So I'm just going to pull the sun a little lower in the sky, and we'll, we'll get the color warmed up here. And yeah, I mean, then you look at the final shots. It's like, yeah, that does pretty much look like a guy riding a motorcycle at golden hour. <laughs> I mean, and the thing is, like we've talked about this before. Like now if they can build something with that technology, the size of like Yankee stadium, mm-hmm. uh, I mean the amount of production that can just take place in there, uh, you can shoot, like you'd be able to shoot any scale scene, like inside right. the volume. I, yeah. I, I'm almost positive. That's where this is all headed. Right. Well, yes, but also the thing that you, y- that's worth noting is that like CG set extension is like an extremely common practice, right? Yeah, that's true. So and a cheap way to do it. Right? right. So it's almost like if you're going to use an asset on the volume in mm-hmm. the background being burned in, in camera, you're just going to use the, an extension of that same asset to extend the image. Right. Hmm. So you almost don't need the, uh, you don't need it to be a thousand feet high right, and a thousand true. feet wide. Uh, but you can't fit a ton of extras in there. Right, you know, that's the thing. Like yeah. Huge sets. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. I mean, I that's, want, that's probably where we're headed is uh, is, is a Yankee Stadium site for you. <laughs> and I wonder if uh, if this is what, like, you know, the old-timey idea of, like, movie studios, if, if that is what it'll one day be, like these just rows and rows of these huge, like, warehouse-sized volumes. 
Yeah, for sure. They're building like, a bunch in New Jersey right now. Wow. Crazy. Yeah. Like, I wonder if if it will ever, you know, be uh, economically or, you know, logistically uh, relevant to shoot on location if you have these at your disposal. I think the question of if you have these at your disposal uh, is, in fact, the economic question. And, uh, I think <laughs> for the majority of people, this will still be uh, out of arm's reach. Yeah, for a long time. Not yeah, forever, though. I mean, this is a, a, a technology that's going to be hard to um, make smaller and, and cheaper. Or oh, maybe not cheaper, but uh, smaller for sure, because the whole thing is that it is ginormous, you know? Right. Like maybe with uh, AR kind of devices. Yeah, maybe. You know. Anyway, so uh, Lambert adds that uh, what we ended up doing was rendering minutes and minutes worth of footage in a 360 degree VR format. And the playback system allowed us to do rotations during filming. So we were even able to do color corrections and put in masks. It was the start of being able to interactively comp on set was a little bit clunky and we kept it to the basics but the fact that we could do rotation was huge you could turn around on set just by spinning the gimbal and then spinning the actual content on the screen whoa man i I had no idea this movie was shot this way yeah that doesn't like strike you as one that it it just seems so traditional in the way that it appears on screen well i think it helps that um for most of the scenes where it's being used, it's like a tiny shitty looking window yeah, in this, right. this spaceship and, That's and true. it's all shot on 16 and, and it's underexposed and it's so fucking grainy <laughs> that like, there's no part of you watching it being like, I bet they shot that like on a huge volume. Like yeah. you're watching it and you're probably like, I don't know, maybe it was a poster with some uh, Christmas lights, you know, stamped right. through it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I think that was the effect they were trying to achieve, right? It, yeah. Yeah. It was the outcome. Yeah. Uh, Lambert said, at the core of those scenes, we retained the original material, but we reframed it, cleaned it up, and extended them on each side with matte paintings and CG. A 58-day shoot using 16mm, 35mm, and 70mm IMAX formats culminated in 615 effect shots added in post. In the end, we were able to shoot this movie without using one green screen or blue screen for live-action shots. Wow. Damn. Yeah. That's got to be kind of a a big deal, like industry speaking. Like the, it's got to be kind of profound that like that now, like, you know, forever, like this is a movie that was made without any green screen at all. I mean, I think Nolan had already done that on Interstellar and that's like why Chazelle thinks he can do that here. Sure. But but yeah, it's it's pretty amazing to make a big, you know, you know, science science inspired fiction epic uh you know with no green screen i guess what i'm more saying not that like sure it's an achievement that they did that i guess like that that's cool that they were able to pull that off if um if that was like something to achieve i'm just saying it's profound that the industry has reached a point that like that is sure. possible and that is you know does that kind of speak to the future of this technology and where things are going that maybe green screen is a thing you know of the past. Yeah. Uh, you know, you keep thinking like, I, I, I always think of those like huge sequences at the end of Avengers Endgame, where there's like, you know, all these billionaire actors who are like running around like a, it's like a high school gym that's painted green. Like it yeah. just looks like fucking ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, and, the funny is, is some of the stuff they did on that 
recent Thor movie where they have a green screen set up in like the, you know, the the parking lot of like a, a Walmart and uh, yeah, and and they're just shooting it there with the with the daylight basically. It's crazy, and I wonder if those are like images we're gonna laugh at in like thirty years because I'd be like, you remember when people did that and like they wore those like green suits and. <laughs> yeah the boom operator in the green suit holding his green painted boom pole yeah lambert said we decided to go down this particular route because we wanted to not be using computer graphics throughout the entire film the idea of having the backgrounds already prepped and rendered and then shot through the camera and instantly gives you the right film patina and you get the right grain too so it's just all about that consistency um and, uh, you know, that that shot at the beginning of the movie where we're talking about, you know, that her, that split horizon, you know, the earth on mm-hmm. one side and, you know, the sky on the other. No VFX in that. Like, the, it's just the reflection yeah. of the of that of that screen in his helmet. Wow. That yeah. is so fucking cool. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Lambert said on the film's use of miniatures, if there was a shot where you saw part of one of the crafts, would either use a full scale or about 80% version of the craft we made as full-sized props. And if it was a mid-shot, we would use Ian Hunter's one-six scale version of the miniatures. And if it was a wide shot, it was okay to be CG. Ian also made one-thirtieth scale of the Saturn V, which is in a couple of shots, and that beast was about 14 feet tall. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And he and he made that Saturn V miniature using uh, PVC piping, acrylic tubing, as well as some 3D printed and uh, and laser cut pieces. I love that miniatures are still very much a part of the process Me too. to this day. It Brings still me a lot of joy. Yeah. Just these like little like, pew, pew, yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> toys just flying around. <laughs> I mean, it works if, if it, it, if mean, it looks yeah, believable it looks enough and you shoot it with the right, you know, focal length and everything like you, you cannot tell because they, it's like real materials on screen and yeah, just like part of that, that movie magic thing that is still happening. Yes. Hunter said, the whole stage was covered in black. We had a three-axis model mover mounted to each of the models, which was also covered in black. And we had a single key light as the sun, which was off at the far end of the stage to give us these nice coarse shadows. No blue screen or green screen. If we needed to do composites, we shot a separate overexposed part of the ship, like a roto mat guide that gave you a defined edge. Mm. That's it. That's how they made them. Damn. I also just love that it's like, well, we're in space and it's the 1960s, so the only light is the sun. Yeah. And even then, I uh I'm curious how how light it is up there. That moment when they uh they get lost in the Gemini, what is it? 11? No, it's the Gemini uh, 8. 8. Uh Yeah. Man, and it's like completely dark and <laughs> so like, good. Where is the the where ship is the that we have to dock to? <laughs> yeah. I love that sequence. Production was given access to NASA's film archive of previous rocket launches, uh, which DNEG then scanned and processed. Lambert said, there was some footage that actually took us months and months to scan because it was based on a NASA military-grade stock, which you couldn't even play back anymore. It was only by chance that we came across an experimental scanner, which was sprocketless, and we were able to scan this material. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so they like i think you know it's I, I didn't find anything that says as much directly but it kind of seems like they have the only scans therefore of this uh of this footage <laughs> uh 
uh, production then cleaned it up and and then further degraded it to have it match the look of the film uh, and then expanded it using CG. Oh, so they're using some of this stuff. Yes, yeah, some of that is in is in the film in the uh, in the launches. Whoa! Yeah. Wow, that's kind of crazy. Yeah. I wonder. Yeah, I wonder what it takes to clean up footage like that to make it seem seamless in this. I mean, I'm sure it helps that they're shooting on 16 millimeter. And they're, they're also, you know, I mean, there's that element. Like, they had to degrade it enough to match the film. So it's the other thing. I see. Um, but, you know, if you're working with uh, with modern scanning, you know, you can really, you can do a lot with, uh, if you have access to the, the actual stock, then there's a lot you can do. <laughs> To create the lunar surface, uh, production built a set at the Vulcan Quarry in Atlanta. Um, Production designer Nathan Crowley had said on Designing the Moon, I knew we either needed a quarry or cement and somewhere that was vast enough that could give us the scale of the moon. I knew the quarry would be the best option, but to match the moon's surface, we needed a gray quarry, which is rare. We were lucky enough that Atlanta happens to have gray quarries. Through the friendliness of the industries that work here, we found our moon at the Vulcan Rock Quarry in Stockbridge, just south of the city, and they let us sculpt the landscape to our direction. What is amazing it? that the moon isn't a set. It's just a fucking concrete quarry in, in, in Atlanta. So a quarry is a place from which stone or other materials are or have been extracted. Yeah, it's like a mine. Interesting. Huh. Yeah, so, right. I mean, I guess... If you can find something that resembles the moon on Earth, why not, right? Yeah. Just got to find something that doesn't look like the planet Earth. <laughs> People, I mean, they do it with Mars all the time, right? Yeah, yeah. There's there's places in the desert where they're like, this is Mars. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Close enough. I did a space movie a few years ago and we, we wanted something that looked very alien. And the director found this beach that um, it wasn't a sandy beach. It was a stone beach. And all the stones were these like black rocks, the size of like a fist. And so, uh, you know, it looks very alien to begin with. Uh, And then we shot at like sunset where the sky was like pink. So the whole scene is like pink and black. It looks extremely fucking weird. And that's like without, you know, without the color grading, it just looks very alien right off the bat. Um. I hope that's that film one day, one day sees the light of day. Yes, me too. Yeah. Uh, in order to do the uh, different gravity there, uh, the one six gravity, uh, they had a bungee system. Uh, so all of the, you know, uh, Buzz and Neil are, uh, are just connected to, to these very long bungee cords that they can bounce <laughs> around on. <laughs> Funny one. Also then painted out in post. When Buzz is, is jumping around in the background. <laughs> And like, Neil's uh, just standing there being sad. Yeah, he's having this very, like, you know, stoic moment and Buzz is in the back. The portrayal of Buzz Aldrin in this movie is fucking great. Yeah, they're like, Buzz sucks. Yeah, like, he is a kind of dude who, like, does not know when to shut the fuck up and says yeah. whatever he's, whatever's on his mind. And uh, I wrote down several times, ugh, Buzz is terrible. Yeah, he is. Like, anytime anyone dies, Buzz is always saying, like, well, I guess I'm going to be the one to do it. Right, he's always like, for the- oh, goody, more space for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to simulate the sun's light, Sandrin collaborated with David Pringle, who created a 100,000-watt soft sunlight. But Sangren did not feel that the 100,000 watt light was strong enough and asked Pringle to develop one that was 200,000 watts. <laughs> so this sun is uh, 200,000 watts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely uh, fucking Jesus. gigantic. Yeah. yeah. 
and it apparently it routinely blew out uh, because it was so powerful. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, mean, like, how do you? No surprise that? there. <laughs> yeah, uh, they also ran into uh, a bunch of issues with the weather, uh, as you know, the the scene was filmed during the winter, and they lost three days of production due to snow and ice. Sangren said, the natural challenges we've had is that when it suddenly started to snow, we had to break for a little bit and move back to the stage for a few days. When we returned, the weather was pretty good. It wasn't so windy and the flag stood still. It's just like the real shoot on the moon. <laughs> we don't see the flag though, do we? I think it might be in like, I, I it's like it doesn't in the background for or me, but it might yeah. be in the background somewhere. Yeah. Lambert said, one thing that did happen was that it was really cold in Atlanta and I could feel my lips trapping and I thought, wow, it's really cold until I saw myself in the mirror and I had rosy cheeks. I got sunburned from that damn bulb. It actually oh sunburned me. It was that bright. Talk about trying to do things practically. Damn. Yeah, I believe it, right? Yeah, it's <laughs> fucking crazy. How does the light of that size not burst into flames? <laughs> Uh, sadly, I don't have any further information <laughs> on that light. Uh, it's just extremely powerful. Uh, you know, it's it's probably it's, it's hooked up to many many uh, you know industrial circuit generators. One of DNEG's jobs was uh, removing visor reflections, uh, in addition to removing the bungee cord system and adding CG dust to the astronauts' footsteps on the moon. Lambert said every shot where you saw an astronaut had a view of the camera, and the IMAX camera is absolutely huge. But you also got to see all of the crew as well, the tents and everything. So part of Damn. the visual effects work was to recreate the scenes digitally, then remove the camera and the crew who all leave tracks and marks in the gravel. So that needs to be cleaned up too. Plus this is IMAX. So when you get your 8K scan back and you look at it, you can still see all those footsteps. Wow. Yeah. It's, uh, we spoke about this, uh, man, a long time ago in our episode with Alex Ross Perry on uh, oh, yeah, on called? Uh, Dyatlov Pass, Devil's the Dyatlov Pass. Pass incident, uh, or uh, yeah. aka Devil's Pass, the Rennie Harlan film where uh, they would like rehearse in one section of the tundra in the snow, you know, and then like get it all together, and then they would move to a section that was untouched and, and get like, like one take, shoot it once because they, they had to be completely, you know, without any footsteps or anything. Yeah, what a nightmare. Gosling's helmet was uh, actually rigged with a microphone and a speaker, and this was so that he could hear the real original recordings that played inside Armstrong's helmet, um, including, wow. you know, but cut together with blank spaces for Gosling to respond with his dialogue. <laughs> now, is the recording that we hear in this film, is that Gosling talking? You when he's know, on the moon? one small step. That's yeah. Gosling, yeah. That's Gosling. But there, but there is... It sounds the, so similar to, yeah. to the real one. Yeah. Um, at the very end of the film in the credits, I think you hear some actual, like, full archival audio from the Apollo 11 Oh, uh, cool. Uh, but in that in that bit, it is Gosling, you know, with of course, you know, modulation that right. makes it sound like it's being broadcast from the moon to planet Earth. <laughs> <laughs> the narrative device of uh, of Karen's bracelet uh, was conjecture on the part of James Hansen, the author of of, of Armstrong's biography uh, and the book that the film was based on. Hansen interviewed several people in Neil's family and felt that Neil may have left something personal on the moon. So oh, wow! Really? Yeah. Yeah, Singer said, leaving tokens on the moon for loved ones or lost ones was actually something that was regularly done. 
So Jim started to wonder if Neil I mean, left- regularly done, meaning like what the, the two or was it well, three times the, we've been on the moon? Yeah. Yeah. But like the, these trips to the, uh, the, the astronauts oh, okay. who have gone to the moon, they have, they've left things up there. Okay. Uh, you know, it's only three times that we've been there, right? Or is it just twice uh, that humans have gone to the moon? The U S has done six crewed missions to the moon, uh, oh, and a total wow. of 12 astronauts, all men, uh, over the the three year period between 1969 and 1972, uh, and that's uh, Apollo's like 11 through uh, 17. Damn! So they were going up there all the time. Well, what six the heck times happened. Six times. <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Six times. I mean, God, I would love to see a broadcast of a dude like on the moon today, being like, "We just made it to the moon again." Hi. It's pretty mid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Other nations haven't made it up there, have they? Yeah. The United States, the only country to land humans on the moon, six times, 12 people in all. Just over the course of, yeah, as you said, yeah, as you said three years. Wow. Yeah, pretty wild. So, as I was saying, uh, leaving tokens on the moon was, uh, quote, regularly done. Uh, and they started to wonder if Neil left anything that belonged to Karen behind and started looking through the manifest for Neil's personal property kit. And Neil had apparently said he'd lost it. That didn't sound like Neil. And in fact, he hadn't lost it. It's in the Purdue archives. And it's in fact being kept under seal until 2022 or something. But perhaps he had misplaced and it still felt odd. Um, And Singer added, so Jim went to June Hoffman, Neil's sister, who Jim thought knew Neil better than just about anyone and asked her, do you think Neil took something of Karen's with him to the moon? And she said, oh, ideally hope so. So wow. it's this idea that, you know, that it's a thing that people did. There's no, uh, there's no evidence that it did happen, but there is evidence that Armstrong has tried to obscure what he brought up with him. So maybe he did. I love that. It's yeah. so poetic. Yeah. It's hard to believe that like this very poetic thing would happen like in, in reality. Although they do kind of tease it out earlier where like, I, I think it's Buzz Aldrin mentions that yeah, he's going to bring some about of his, bringing wife's, his jewelry. wife's jewelry yeah yeah so i mean it's one of the more magic things of this movie of, but, of but this when, one moment <laughs> but when they ask neil what are you going to bring like after buzz is like oh i'm going to bring my wife's necklace like neil what are you going to bring is i wish i could bring more fuel yeah he's <laughs> he's <laughs> just all business he's devoid of, of humanity at that point yeah so apparently the, uh, the conversation where uh, Janet Armstrong, Neil's wife, uh, tells him he has to talk to his children before going to the moon, uh, this happened in real life. And much of Neil's dialogue in the scene was taken from his children, Mark and Rick Armstrong's recollections of the conversation. Wow. Yeah. Um, Singer and Chazelle gave the script to Mark and Rick Armstrong to read and give notes on. And Rick Armstrong said that his mother would not have said fuck during the scene. And after seeing the film, uh, Rick said that Claire Foy's performance was too good not to use. Whoa. Okay. So the, the family is kind of involved. This adds a lot of, uh, you know, credence to these scenes. And uh, it is not like a super great look at this man, which it surprises me that the family is game for this. I think it's really cool because, I mean, on the one hand, I'm sure you... It's like there's part of you that's like, yeah, like, my, you know, my, my dad's one of the most famous people ever. Like, you know, respect mm-hmm. him. What he did was amazing. On the other hand, like, Chazelle's making this film that's sort of like deconstructing the myth of Neil Armstrong. And like at the heart of that deconstruction is like, 
you know, what his family had to live through. I'm sure that on right. some level, they're probably like, stop mythologizing my father. He was just a guy. Yeah. And I think there, that is part of like the generosity of this film is by making him a real human being, he only becomes more like heroic. Like by taking I, I him agree with you. out of mythology and like showing the real trials that this man went through to do what he did. And I wouldn't describe this movie necessarily as like anti Neil Armstrong at no, all. No, not at all. I, I would describe the movie as like a sobering take on on American history. I don't think it's necessarily anti-America. I mean, there's... No, but a sobering know. take on US history is a really good yeah. way of phrasing it. Yeah, I mean, maybe you can make the argument that Chazelle doesn't like make any solid like claims on either side because we, we do have this sequence in the film, uh, uh, this, you know, the song Whitey's on the Moon, mm-hmm. um, where it, it is showing the like kind of ridiculous uh, disparity and, you know, this idea that white men are are literally landing on the moon while people at home are like, you know, on welfare and, you know, trapped in these, these structures they can't escape. And yeah. So like Chazelle is smart to show that stuff because that is the stuff that is a hundred percent missing from Apollo 13. And like right. most of these movies, frankly, um, doesn't really make a call either way, but, I I don't 100% know that that is his job in this. No, I don't think that's his intention either. I don't think he's sort of sort of trying to say one way or the other whether or not this was a good or bad thing. He's just trying to show us the interior experience of of who it was actually happening to. Yeah, and like how like a ma- miraculous like achievement like this actually happens. Right. That's all, right? Like like this is like the here's reality how it actually of happened. Here's yeah, the here's the yeah. actual cost of it. And and to that point featuring the, you know, the Whitey's on the moon segment, like plays into, here's the actual cost of it. Yeah. And yeah, as I, as I mentioned before, so the, the, the end, uh, the very, the tail end of the very end credits, it's comms chatter, not from the uh, Apollo 11, but actually from the Gemini eight. Um, and Giselle includes this. Uh, he says, uh, I've always been allergic to the trend of uh, historical biopic movies ending with showing you the real people. To me, it always seems a little defeatist. Like, why did you just do two hours of fakery then you show me the real thing? Um, and so he he includes that audio as sort of like his way of doing it without doing it. I like that. I appreciate that. Yeah. Also, you, ha- you have to stay till the very end in order to uh, to get it. It's your little post-credits buzzer. <laughs> yeah. Neil Armstrong will return. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he brings uh, he brings Tom Cross in to uh, to edit the film and uh, you know we got some some insights from that process. Um, originally, the the opening scene of Neil in the X fifteen had him uh, talking the entire time uh, throughout the whole scene, but Chazelle went through and cut out all of the dialogue except for his his final uh, line at the end, uh, "I'm down," um, which I think adds to the tension in the scene. Yeah, it's super eerie. It's like you have all of these people from Mission Control being like, okay, Neil, like we see you doing this. Okay, Neil, do this. Neil, do that. And he is like this man who was like breaking the sound barrier or whatever, just completely quiet. Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, and it's perfect way to set up the character. Yeah. Uh, They also had originally uh, shot a sequence of Neil Armstrong's house burning down. Uh, The first assistant director actually asked Giselle, you know, could we not film this uh, and save some time and save some money? Uh, Giselle was confident it would end up in the film 
uh, but it didn't. <laughs> hmm. I'm kind of happy that it doesn't. And I don't know what this says for like historical accuracy, but I feel like the the core of this film is so simple and pure. Yeah, like we don't need an, so, another thing. Yeah, just like the loss of his daughter being this like propulsion away from humanity. It's just such a solid and simple thing. Yeah, it really and, and works. And the continued loss of yeah. his, you know, all of his friends. Oh like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we don't we don't need him to also lose his house. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, crosswoods sometimes receive. 24 audio tracks at a time uh because in the mission control sequences as we talked about earlier they all the characters had you know these, these throwaway lines of dialogue they had to read uh so they were all mic'd uh and uh you know that, that's just a, another thing that cross had to dig through and, and and sort out is 24 dialogue tracks wow yeah production also uh you know they they shot a continued ending you know the film currently ends with uh with with Neil in quarantine with uh, with the JFK uh, audio, uh, but instead uh, they they had actually filmed Neil and Janet uh, uh, leaving quarantine and, and going home together. Oh, yeah. I, I guess I could. Uh, I mean, for those who haven't seen the movie, that what 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 we end with is this image of Neil in quarantine behind glass, and he finally sees his wife again after, as we explained earlier, like when he leaves for his final mission here, it's kind of contentious terms with his wife because he is not sitting down and like telling his kids, this may be the last time you ever see me. He he does a very bad job right. of it. And she's very upset with him and, as and she he, should be. And he doesn't really like, he doesn't really do any of the uh, things he should be saying or doing, not just to his children, but for her as well. He's, yeah. he's just like, I'm going to the moon. You deal Bye. with it. <laughs> like, yeah. Peace. And I mean, we also haven't highlighted uh, Claire Foy in this movie. Oh, she's who so good. I think is actually like the secret reason why this movie really works because yeah. this is the first of these movies that's like, no, what is it actually like to be married to a man who does this? Yeah. <laughs> like not just the way it is in Apollo 13 where it's like, oh, I miss you. It's going to be hard. Like, no, what is it actually like? What's the day-to-day life like? And and, uh, you know, how heroic it is for the person who, like, keeps everything at home together, too. It's yeah. not an easy thing. Uh, so when he comes back, they're not on great terms. And we have this very kind of, like, alien kind of feeling of he's come back from the moon. He's behind glass. And they see each other again and uh, just kind of have this, yeah, this very somber moment where he, he like, kisses his hand and, and pushes it into the glass. And she, like touches his hand behind the glass you can tell she's still like pretty pissed at him but there's just this feeling of like what like happens now like what yeah like, <laughs> i did it what like what was that i went to for? i went to therapy and, yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah now That's we gotta, a, now we gotta finally uh figure out what to do uh you know With eight that, years yeah. after the fact yeah yeah uh so Chazelle brings in Justin Hurwitz, who has, you know, composed all of his uh, all of his films, and uh, and and Hurwitz apparently actually began scoring the film uh, in pre-production. Um, he starts early, uh, and because they knew that, uh, because they knew Armstrong was a, fa- a fan of the theremin, which we hear when we we see his yes. like, his, mu- his, his moon music stuff. Um, Hurwitz taught himself how to play theremin. 
and he oh, he, he bought yeah. a vintage 1968 Moog theremin and uh, and and taught himself uh, all about like modular synthesizers. That's so uh, cool. Yeah, like those ones where you properly are like patching cables around. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, Chazelle said uh, we knew we'd be- we would record a big orchestra for it because we needed it to be big and emotional. We didn't want it to sound like a traditional orchestra, um, which is why they're running it through through like this uh, this synthesizer and, and and you know with the with the modular cabling. Um, Howitz recorded all the string instruments separately, ran the audio through a rotor cabinet with a spinning speaker. He then re-recorded the playback as he moved the cabinet around the room. Um, (laughs) yeah, such a strange process. Wow. Yeah. And he says, uh, that gave it this weird otherworldly kind of flutter to it. Then I put it through a tremolo to give it a second layer of flutter. (laughs) And then the violins, basses, and cellos were all given different rates of flutter. So... There were all these flusses that were in conflict with each other. Whoa. I got to listen to this, this score again now. Oh, that in it's mind. so good. But uh, man, the theremin stuff in this is so cool. It rocks. Uh, for people who don't know, like a theremin is, you know, like the the classic, like, <laughs> like and, and it's like this strange, like early electronics, like haunted device where it's mm-hmm. like this... It's like a, a you like, like manipulate a, sine waves with the wave yeah. of your hand. It's a pole, like a small pole that juts out from uh, this device. That uh, yeah, you use your two hands above it, almost as if you're like conducting an orchestra. But what you're really doing is, you know, it's like it's like a putting your hand close to a staticky TV, like a staticky CRT yeah. TV back in the day, right? Uh, such a fucking strange thing, and. Man, there have been so many times where, like, I have like the theremin in my e- eBay, like, uh, in my cart. <laughs> like, just do, do it, it, dude. Do it. <laughs> my, <laughs> I want to uh, try it so bad. <laughs> my mum bought one for my dad for his birthday last year. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh my god, it's yeah. a great gift. It rocks. It's like, it was like a perfect gift for my dad. My dad. Um. So they have this, you know, this amazing technique of how they're like mixing the audio and, and affecting it. But uh, but they did record with a ninety-four piece orchestra. Um, you know, they, they really did, did, you know, did the work on this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Howitz said on creating the, the main theme for the film, it had to have a sense of loneliness, but also beauty. Like when he gets to the moon, you're on this barren surface. It's all very beautiful, but it's all very, very lonely. Mm. And because he had begun working on the score, uh, during pre-production, uh, when it came time to edit the film, uh, he was able to give his demos to, uh, to Tom Cross, which meant that there was no temp score. Huh. Without the temp score, everything is a lot more simple, right? <laughs> right. It's just no, no. This is the score. Here it yeah, is. You're done. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um. So we've already talked about the uh, the you know the uh, fascist nonsense about there not being a flag. Blah blah blah. <laughs> um. But I'll, I'll just add that uh, Josh Singer said of the flag controversy, uh, we all felt like this was a deeply patriotic movie about a patriot who gave and gave and gave for his country. I think that's clear throughout the movie. When people see the movie, I think they'll see that. This movie is certainly not partisan in the slightest. One of the remarkable things about the moon mission is there were three presidents from both sides of the aisle. Kennedy started it, Johnson continued it, and Nixon was there for the moon landing. 
we're really focused on what you don't know about this guy because what you don't know about Neil is what makes him even more impressively heroic. This is suffering and loss and grace. And to me, that makes him an even greater hero than the icon we know, which is basically what you've been saying. But he's right. You know, if you want to, if you want to get all mad about the, the flag, then you are, you, it's just someone who hasn't watched the film and doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about. Yeah. Uh, This, I mean, like there are movies that are way harder on like, you know, the military industrial complex, like whole deal with, with, you know, missions and exploits like this. I mean, even uh, interstellar is like not a very pro NASA movie at all. Like NASA Mm -hmm. is kind of like the, the bad guy in that movie. That's true. And uh, nobody threw their, you know, arms up about that. That's a good point. Um, Chazelle added the, um, that's why we spent as much time as we do alone with Neil on the crater or walking to the crater or the first instance of him stepping off the ladder. We don't spend a lot of time with him and Buzz. The flag planting was not Neil alone. It was Buzz and Neil planting it. Buzz being photographed next to it. Every image we've seen of someone next to a flag, that is Buzz. We're not doing the Buzz Aldrin story or the Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong story. We're doing Neil Armstrong's right. subjective emotion, emotional thinking about his past on the moon in a sort of surreal emotional way. That was our priority. Um, again, as with pretty much any of these sort of, you know, um, Fox News controversies, um, they're all absolute fucking nonsense, uh, you know, created by fascists to distract you from any semblance of anything real going on in the world. And, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, we, bring, we bring them up here only to point out how fucking stupid they are. <laughs> yeah. First Man was released domestically on October 12th, 2018. On an estimated budget of $59 million, the film brought in $44.9 million domestically and $105 million worldwide. While not a flop, the film was disappointing commercially. The film received a positive response from both critics and audiences. The film's story, emotion, effects, acting, and direction were all praised. And the film was nominated for four Academy Awards and won for Best Visual Effects. I wonder if it was a, po- a problem in the marketing of this movie. Like, if you look at the poster of this film, like, that is not what this film is. The poster yeah. makes it look like it's fucking, like, Armageddon or something. Yeah, with all the sparks <laughs> flying. It's, yeah. It's really weird. What the fuck weird. is that? Yeah. This isn't, like, a big, like, pres- like uh, a big, like, I mean, they, you know, they, it feels like they tried to market it like an action movie, which yeah. is not what it is, you know? It's not. This film actually has more in common with Drive than it does with Apollo yes. 13. Yeah. You know, it's like, you're, you're so right. Yeah. I wonder if they had marketed it that way, you know, highlighting like how fucking weird it is. Like, you know, the, uh, the strange theremin of it all. I wonder if that had been, you know, harder hit, if it would have had a better reception. I don't know that it would have improved the reception of the film. Uh, but I don't know what version of the marketing gets people to go and see it because I don't know that uh, you get a mass audience to go to a theater by being like this movie about Neil Armstrong. Uh, it's kind of about how he's a weirdo. Like, I don't think, uh, <laughs> I don't think you can make that trailer and expect to fill, you know, uh, a blockbuster sized uh, crowd there, but that's true. But that's at the true. same time, like marketing it in a way that's deeply inaccurate, uh, it doesn't help anyone. I mean, we should also like come back to reality a little bit here and, and just again, highlight like this, this film like had a ton of like award nominations and a few wins. Yeah. But there are plenty of films every year that are like nominated that then like the general public is like, what the fuck's that? I've never heard of that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think, you know, generally it did not get its due, 
but uh, critically, like some of you know the critics we love the most put this at in you know in their top tens. You can see on Wikipedia, like yeah, uh, no, I know, I know that know. It, it it got. It, it's not that the film is 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 completely unknown. It's more just that like you know, look, if you make a film for fifty nine million dollars, you're expecting to make minimum like a quarter bill at the box office right yeah, yeah you know you don't spend that kind of money on a movie unless you're expecting to really like you know quadruple that investment more or less right um so that's the kind of film they think they're making and they're and and in watching this film i'm watching it and being like yeah this should have made 250 million dollars at the box office this should be fucking humongous but uh our old friend angie han named it uh number three of her top 10 list for 2018 on mashable hell yeah yeah This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook, with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Jan, the ship is stable. They're going to be all right. He's okay, Jan. I need you to go home. Fine. Turn the box back on. I'll see what I can do. Now, turn the box back on. Now. On their security protocol. Well, I don't give a damn. I've got a dozen cameras on my front lawn, Deke. Do you want me telling them what's going on? Jen, you have to trust us. We've got this under control. No, you don't. All these protocols and procedures to make it seem like you have it under control. But you're a bunch of boys making models out of balsa wood. You don't have anything under control. All right, Dom. You ready for some Eye of the Ducks? Yes. Let's fulfill our destiny. Let's do it. Um, I got to say, you know... Back in uh, in episode one of this series, when you insisted on going first for 2001, it was initially very sad that, uh, that mm-hmm. I wouldn't get to go first just because of, you know, my scene being in chronological order. I thought it would have been a fun, mm-hmm. fun thing to do. But um, but now it's all paid off because I get to go first <laughs> for this episode. And I think you and I both know there's only one answer to this this question. And uh, I think I get, so. I get to go there first. Um, you tend to surprise me, though. It's true. Um, but today I'm the first man. <laughs> Sorry, I'm feeling insane. Um, uh, as per usual, Dom, I'm going to be, uh, extremely, uh, long-winded, uh, here. Yeah, bring so it on. I wanted to ask you, um, do you know what the overview effect is? Is that something that happens in space when you come back it changes your perception? Yeah, I'll, I'll elaborate it for you. And, and this is all going to be, uh, this is a lengthy quote uh, on what it is from the man who uh, coined the term itself. This is from uh, space philosopher and author Frank White uh, on the NASA podcast. 
He said, the first thing that happened with that, I had that experience that led to coining the overview effect as a term. And that was an experience flying across the country and looking out the window and having what I think was a mild experience of the overview effect, where I was imagining living in one of those O'Neill cylinders between the earth and the moon. And I thought, if I lived in a place like that, I would always have an overview of the earth. I would see it from a distance and I would see it's a unified whole. There are no borders or boundaries, all these things that would become knowledge, which living on the surface, we find it very hard to philosophically grasp or mentally grasp. And the term overview effect came to me. And that's when I started talking to astronauts. My experience in the airplane was actually confirmed by them. They understood what I was talking about. They didn't think it was a silly question. And they said, oh yeah, we know what you're saying. We know what you're asking. And so the first thing that most people think about when they think about the overview effect is no borders or boundaries on the earth. And we know that. But we create maps that show borders and boundaries. And what the astronauts were telling me was, I knew before I went into orbit or I went to the moon, there wasn't any little dotted lines. But it's knowing intellectually versus experiencing it. And so there's also the striking thinness of the atmosphere, something that they see. And again, for most astronauts, the feeling that the Earth itself uh, is a whole system and we're just a part of it. We need to think of ourselves as part of this organic system, if you will. And then there are other things that come out of this, this kind of conclusions they draw. I mean, those are the things they see, and then there are conclusions they draw. And one of them is, we are all in this together. Our fate is bound up with people that we may think are really different from them. We may have different religions, we may have different politics, but ultimately we are connected, totally connected. And not only with people, but with life. We're totally connected with life and everything relates to everything else. And, and, and out of that also is the realization again, you could know that too. I mean, you could say, I know that. I know we're all connected. I know our differences don't matter all that much. But again, it's knowing it with the brain and not the heart. And so the big sort of what I would call it insight about their experiences is that it is an experience. Um, and I wanted to read all of that because uh, I think it it speaks to yeah, it's a great quote. where I'm going to go with, with my reading. Um and it also similarly reminds me of, uh, of this notion of ego death, which is, uh, which is a concept from Jungian philosophy and, and is often discussed by, by people who take uh, hallucinogenic uh, drugs. Um, you have this, this you, you go on this you know, psycho, psychedelic trip and you experience a complete loss of the subjective self and, and, and in that process, like with the, the overview effect, can find yourself connected to everything and everyone and, and life itself and... And you have this uh, this emotional experience that uh, that helps you understand things that you knew intellectually. And to me, these are both notions of uh, perspective. You know, mm-hmm. we might be able to uh, know things about ourselves and about the world and about our place in it. We can know these things intellectually, but sometimes we can't feel them uh, uh, emotionally. And in order for that to happen, we require a shift in our perspective. Uh, and I think Chazelle calls this out a bit uh, when, mm-hmm. when Armstrong is interviewing to be part of the Gemini mission. He says, I had a few opportunities in the X-15 to observe the atmosphere. It was so thin, such a small part of the earth that you could barely see it at all. And when you're down here in the crowd and you look up, it looks pretty big and you don't think about it too much. But when you get a different vantage point, it changes your perspective. 
Mm. I don't know what space exploration will uncover, but I don't think it will be exploration just for the sake of exploration. I think it'll be more the fact that it allows us to see things that we maybe should have seen a long time ago, but just haven't been able to until now. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. It's a really, really well acted quote and it just it's it's a good you know it's a great moment in the movie it's so good and and it begins to kind of scratch the surface of of this notion of of perspective and and there's another moment i, w- I want to bring up as i lead to the scene but um the other thing that i think keys into this is a moment you brought up already when they are uh they're in the gemini 8 and they are trying to dock with the the agena and they can't find it and uh and so they turn off the lights um, and it's only after turning off the lights that this thing that wasn't showing up on their instruments properly, that they couldn't physically yeah. see, um, when they turn off the lights, suddenly they get this, they see this glint or, or Armstrong rather, not, not, um, not Scott, but Armstrong sees a glint of light, mm-hmm. uh, uh, off of the edge of the Agena. And, and, you know, we, we too see the glint of the idea that, you know, shifting your perspective can, can reveal new things. Um, but then, of course, we we finally get to the moon, and mm-hmm. uh, and this is all taken to another level. Uh, we discussed already during the production history the way in which the filmmaking on Earth and the moon is uh, approached in different ways. But I do just want to speak in some specific things briefly mm-hmm. um, before we go to the moon, and even on the journey there, it's all on grainy film stock with a very narrow field of view uh, due to the size of that stock. Uh, that utilizes intimate framing, often extreme close-ups uh, that are sometimes then become even more extreme because of the use of these zoom lenses. Right. And we're often in a state of instability due to the handheld nature of the camera operation. You know, it's this very verite characteristics. So around two hours into the film, the lamb lands on the moon and the camera pushes through the hatch and out onto the lunar surface everything changes the entire <laughs> language of the film changes and the yeah. the perspective literally shifts uh, this is the scene this is the scene the mm. the shaky camera steadies itself and begins to float through the space the field of view and the aspect ratio expand from 239 60 millimeter to 169 uh, imax 70 the lenses are wider neil is no longer compressed against his background we're not right up on him we finally feel him in his environment. The grain is basically gone. We see everything in this pure, crisp detail. And even the dynamic range has increased. You know, mm-hmm. um, before this, when you're seeing the the black void of space, uh, the black feels lifted. You know, it's kind of yeah. like this gray, grainy blanket over the image. But now it's an actual void. Uh, yeah. And especially if you're watching on an HDR television, like it's actually pure black. And the, the sound cuts out, you know, because we're, we're in the void, you know, there is no, there is no sound out here. And as he steps down onto the moon, the, the camera spins around him in this, this perfect 360 degree move. We float closer to him and he gazes out at the distant earth. And then his perspective, uh, the character's perspective changes because Neil finally allows himself to, to think about Karen, um, and instead of seeing her on the worst days they spent together, like we do earlier in the film, he sees the best ones. And this too, we see in the expanded IMAX aspect ratio. It's it's certainly <laughs> shot on the same grainy film stock as the first part of the movie, but the aspect yeah. ratio remains the same as it does on the moon. Because he's <laughs> not just seeing a different part of his memory of her, 
he's seeing these memories in a completely new and different way because his perspective has been changed. And he drops her bracelet down into the shadow that he casts on the surface of the moon. And with this new perspective, the uh, this IMAX film with this dynamic range, with this field of view, the bracelet has the appearance of floating off into the void itself, into this, yeah. this kind of pure inky black. And you have this final shot of the the lem taking off from the surface. And in these shots, unlike the approach on the moon, uh, which is in that previous aspect ratio and, and, and format, uh, this is still in IMAX and using these techniques because Neil is taking this new perspective home with him. Which for me, this means that this is one of those incredibly rare scenes that we're so lucky to, to get when we do this show mm-hmm. where the physical craft of the filmmaking represents the full realization of the film's themes, its character arcs, and its story, all while showcasing an abstract philosophical idea. Uh, You know, and and it should be added that 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 notion of the the overview effect, one of the things that Mm -hmm. people feel so, uh, is so important about it, is this idea that like, if everyone could have access to that experience and people who are really into hallucinogens say the same thing about ego death, that if everyone could have access to that experience, the world would probably be a much better place because you would emotionally understand that you are connected to everyone. And a lot right. of this, this stuff about the, diff- you know, it's very hippie stuff, but this notion that yeah, sure. all the differences between us would, would, would be easier to overcome if we properly understood each other. Um, and I think it's just wild that um, Giselle is able to tie in all of these notions in, into one single thing. And I, and I want to reread the, the thing I, I read earlier, the, the second of, of Neil's two lines in that interview where he says, I don't know what space exploration will uncover, but I don't think it'll be exploration just for the sake of exploration. I think it'll be more the fact that it allows us to see things that maybe we should have seen a long time ago. But we just haven't been able to until now, until that that field of view expands and, and everything changes. Um, so this, I think, has to be my eye of the duck. Yeah, it's the scene. I'm wondering his perspective shift from your opinion. What is his shift there? I think the it is the film's perspective changes when we go through the hatch, but then yeah. his perspective changes when he looks back at the earth. And what is it that he you think he realizes like when he gets rid of the bracelet? I I think he is uh, allowing himself to to begin grieving, which, which is yeah. the thing he's been unable to do, and 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 you know, it's like he's like, well, I I am gonna instead of grieving my daughter, I'm gonna go to the moon, yeah, you know, and he gets there, and he's like, well, I'm here now. What is what does it mean? What you know? What is mm-hmm. this? You know, see, this is what makes this, I think, such a uh, uh, such a quality movie is that I also, you know, obviously think this is the, the, the moment that, that kind of defines this film, but I have a different 
observation of it. Hell yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm, I mean, it's pretty close to where you are, but I'm so compelled by mine that I, I, I it's hard for me to see any other, any other like uh, perception of this film. Um, but I guess it's not all that different. So like, let's hear it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we've been talking about how this is a movie about isolation and I think it's useful to point out that it's called first man and like, you know, at first man doesn't, uh, necessarily mean that you like, you know, you get to the top by yourself, but like, it mm-hmm. does imply that like, it's singular. It's like, there's only one first. So like, you know, mm-hmm. the whole thing about how like it's lonely up at the top, like, you know, it, this is a movie about, I mean, it's a lonely movie. It's, it's about, uh, you know, a man who, who just continues to isolate and isolate. And I think it is one of the more like moving parts is, uh, when he has to say goodbye to his kids. Mm -hmm. And at that point, like there's his son, uh, (laughs) when he goes to first, he gives his, his youngest son a hug goodbye. And then his, his next, oldest son gives him but he goes for a hug and he gives him a handshake oh and man it's like it's devastating it's so cold but it's it's so like neil armstrong it gets so like he he has you know at, at this point in the movie his like determination to to be isolated has now extended farther than himself. It's like extended to into his progeny. Like now it'll, yeah. it, it, it has crossed the threshold. And like now we're seeing his son, you know, the result of his coldness is now like so manifest. And, and you begin to uh, understand like the amount of loneliness that a person, you know, will, un- will endure when they, they take on a goal of this size. And, there is a horrific trauma that opens this movie. Um, the idea mm-hmm. of having like an infant daughter and then that uh, she's taken by, you know, by this, this tragic sickness. And it's very simple the way that he is just like shattered as a human being. Like that, that's, that is the opening of this movie of, you know, him kind of being a family man and then just getting completely like, you know, destroyed by his, his daughter's loss. And, and from there, I think he is fundamentally changed. Yeah. And, you know, whereas before she dies, he's still tethered to his family. Like he's even willing to postpone his career and, you know, and potentially postpone like the greatest scientific accomplishment in human history, you know, landing Mm -hmm. on the moon. If if, like he uh, he's willing to postpone that for his family. But after, you know, her death, like he's released Mm-hmm. And it's not like a, a release of like peace or freedom. Like it, it, like he is released towards like this, this huge crater inside him. And, mm-hmm. and he, the more he drifts into it, like just the bigger and darker and colder it becomes. And so like, instead of, you know, reaching for connections with, with the people he cares about, people who love him, he just, he goes deeper and deeper into this crater. And it's like, you know, it's the going to the moon is like the logical, like conclusion of like (laughs) self-isolation. Like there is nothing, you know, it's as isolated as a human being can get so far. And, you know, it's this ultimate place of darkness and isolation. And 
he, I think, and this is where our readings maybe, maybe diverge is, I think his strategy here is, uh, is getting to this place of complete and utter isolation will bring him the peace that he's searching for. Yeah. I, I, I so feel that in the film. Yeah. yeah. Like his strategy for like self medication or self therapy or counseling is I am going to cut off all association with humans until like I, I find some sort of meaning in my daughter's death or some consolation or something. Yeah. And I think if Chazelle is making any kind of observation in this film about any of the stuff he presents, to me, what he observes here is that is just a, a uh, objectively like wrong way to deal with one's trauma. It's just like <laughs> the wrong way. Yeah. And in this moment, like, so he reaches the moon. I mean, he, he achieves his goal. Yeah. And the idea that offering this bracelet into this like crater in the moon as if like that is going to heal anything like psychologically, like if that can actually cure your like depression, like, you know, throwing like a bracelet into space, it's like a, a lunatic notion. Like I, I and I feel like huh. in this moment, like when he gets here, whether he realizes it or not, like he throws that bracelet and it's just so fucking devastating because I'm watching it thinking like, what are you doing, man? Like, like you've gone on this whole journey just to do this. Like, and you know, I think a lot of this is, you know, symbolic. Although now I'm actually interested now that I'm now that I know that maybe he actually did bring some shit up there. I I mean, I I feel like I I definitely read that specific moment very differently where I, I feel the, like I, you, I agree with with most of what you're saying. That this notion that like you know, this is the wrong way to deal with this. I sure that's, sure, that's sure. true. Yeah, but I, but I do think the image itself of of him doing that. I feel like the thing that we're being shown is someone who is um, letting go of one way of thinking about their kid and mm-hmm. and uh, opening them up to accepting a new way of thinking about them. You know, like which you know, I, I think is a thing that can happen during the, the grieving process where at first you're just a, you know, you can't stop thinking about the fact that they've died and, and how they've died and how horrible it is that they're dead. And it takes a long time to move past that and be able to get to the point where you can start actually thinking about like, you know, the, 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 the good, you know, the, the good memory of the person and, and like what you loved about them and all this stuff. And I think because we're intercutting between the 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 stuff of the past and that i do think that reading is available to you uh as well i don't think uh i i don't know that we're we're seeing him throw that into the uh the void and meant to go like hell yeah you cured yourself buddy like no (laughs) (laughs) yeah i know that's not what you're saying what i'm getting from this scene the power that i get from this scene is what he learns in this moment Mm -hmm. rather than what he like achieves here that like uh, and and by achieve, I mean like achieving this, uh, what you're saying of this moment of like, you know, releasing the pain finally. What I'm seeing, you know, you know, completely subjective at this point, but what I see, like he scans the horizon and what he sees in his memory is like these lush, you know, uh, family home videos kind of, of, of like 
his life back home and how mm-hmm. full of color and love and like, you know, connection it was. And then it's this brutal contrast of this like completely barren landscape, yeah. <laughs> just all gray, gray, black, like that's all there is. And him looking around and like this dawning on him that like, you know, it wasn't like coming up to the moon that was going to bring me peace. Like it was earth. It was like Mm -hmm. being on earth is the only thing that's going to heal this wound. And that's what to me makes the kind of like bizarre ending all the more powerful to me is like, yeah, so he gets back and I mean, his, his wife and, and him, like they don't have that moment that you kind of expect where it's like, I'm sorry, I'm going to start working on myself now. Like I really (laughs) fucked up by just like walking out of the house and going to the moon. (laughs) Um, Also though, like it doesn't like cast a ton of judgment on like the, you know, the cliche of like, you know, daddy's not going to be home. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, what about us? I mean, it's still, you know, it's complicated. He, he is a hero (laughs) to the human race. And, uh, so there is, you know, it's, it's complex in that moment, but when he's down there with his wife and that, that look that they give to each other, to me, what that, what that ends on is him kind of finally, you know, coming full circle of like, yeah. So everything I just did, like, that that still like didn't work. So now like I'm here now and like I think now I need to begin the actual work of helping myself cuz what I thought would happen up there like didn't happen for me. That's just my take. Yeah. And it, it it's powerful for me and it, that like, you know, fills me with a lot of, you know, uh with sad, sadness and I think it it's moving and and resonant uh and it's a really really um I think like earned and like emotionally intelligent uh yeah like note to to share with an audience especially in a movie about like an astronaut um, yeah and i love it I, I i really i really love that that idea yeah i mean i think you're you're right to kind of look in in that direction at things because you know incredibly this is a film about neil armstrong the man that went to the moon and the inciting incident is uh the death of his daughter yeah. Like that's the thing that yeah. like, that spurns him on the the journey right. towards the the moon, which is just you know not what you would ever expect. So I think you're totally right to 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 have that kind of read on it. Um, it's just so interesting. I, th- I think perhaps because I have a very specific view of uh, of uh, the the grieving process, just from my own experience with it, where I I, I can't help but see the uh, I guess a slightly more optimistic read on it on this this mm-hmm. notion that like. I, I don't think he's gone to the moon and healed himself, but I do think mm-hmm. he's gone to the moon and realized like, all right, like it's time. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I, I can totally see that. I mean, it's, it's so close to what I'm saying. It might as well yeah. be the same Just thing. Just cause he's, but... it's like he, he, you know, she dies and then he's like, all right, I'm going to devote the next near, you know, nearly a decade of my life <laughs> yeah. to, uh, to trying to, to go moon. to the moon. And that's yeah. how I'm going to deal with her being dead. And, yeah. and at the end of the eight years, he's like, well, I'm on the moon. <laughs> time to properly grieve you yeah know? like i can't yeah. i can't put this off anymore you know oh man and i think about the michael corleone of it all that if we are tracking mm-hmm. like i don't i've never seen chazelle say in an interview or anything that that's what he's thinking here but to me it's just so obvious that like the, just the way he's shooting it that everything is draped in this darkness that only reminds me of the godfather and 
I'm thinking about Godfather 2 and that ending where Michael is sitting there with the leaves blowing, just thinking about, you know, killing his older brother and like completely alone, looks like shit, you know, wearing all black. Uh, leaves are just like blowing there uh, against him as if, you know, he's just like <laughs> another inanimate object in, in the mm-hmm. breeze. And uh, I am intrigued by this being kind of like the next note for that movie where, you know, Coppola ends on, on that being like, and this is what happens when you uh, completely forget about the people who care about you. Yeah. And then Chazelle, you know, however many years later in a movie like this is taking it one step further and being like, and then you realize that like you can connect with them. I mean, if you haven't yeah. killed them, like <laughs> there is still hope if you just <laughs> reach out, which, which, uh, Armstrong literally does yes. in the last minutes, reaches out with his hand and connects with his wife. And you see this, like this really beautiful connection between them that we haven't seen, uh, from, you know, the past like two hours of the movie. And yeah. 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 No, it's, it's, it's amazingly well done. It's, I mean, it's always so sad to look at two people who love each other ser- separated by, you know, double, double glazed, uh, yeah. you know, glass window. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, a rival sort of ends in the same That's way. That's true. It? I, yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, man, I can't wait to cover that one day. Oh yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there we for sure. <laughs> oh, I just I love the notion that like the according to this film, at least the reason why they want to go to the moon is spe- specifically because it is so impossible that setting this as the goal levels the playing field between the U.S. and Russia. God, yeah, like we, ha- we have American to rethink a- thing. Yeah. Right. It's like we have to rethink our space program, which means they have to rethink theirs, which means their current progress doesn't mean anything. Like, <laughs> oh my God. That's how you're looking at this? That's so weird. Yeah. <laughs> we were talking about the astronauts in this movie, me and my wife, and how, like, at one point they make fun of Armstrong because he wrote a musical in college. Yeah, the uh, land of, what it? Uh, was it? Ecologue uh, or... Ecologue, yeah. No. Edgelock. college. Edgelock, yeah. It's college backwards. Yeah. And apparently he is like a musical theater nerd and the other astronauts are making fun of him and I was making the joke that like, yeah, why is it that only jocks go to space? But then Maria was like, no, it's never jocks. Like, they're all nerds. Like, they're yeah. all like, they're all like doing like, you know high like level like calculus math like on their yeah. <laughs> on these for sure they're all notepads. fucking nerds so i thought it was funny they're making fun of him for like writing a musical because like dude you are you're all fucking nerds like yeah <laughs> to be able to do this you have to be so extraordinarily intelligent and yeah you uh, do you have to be smart as hell yeah um i just realized that a thing i wanted to bring up uh when talking about your scene um you're saying that like you know he's he's trying to find the sort of like logical extreme of 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 self-isolation yeah um and i've like another scene that really helps point to that is that moment um after um patrick fugit has died and he he like leaves the funeral because he like can't handle being there he's just like standing outside in his his back garden looking through a telescope up at the moon and um and Jason Clark comes up to him and starts trying to talk to him. 
and he says, do you think I'm standing out here because I want to talk to somebody? And it's like, I feel yeah. like, you know, it's the same thing like on the moon. Like, do you think yeah. I'm standing out here because I want to talk to someone? Right. <laughs> I came to the moon because I want to connect with other humans. <laughs> I love his relationship with this Jason Clark character because it's yeah. just, you know, another very pure, simple situation where like Jason Clark just keeps trying to reach out like as a friend being like, you know, you want to get a beer? Like, what's going on, man? Like, and, and talked then he, in like he, he 12 realized, scenes. <laughs> yeah. And then he realizes, you know, like when he's di- when he's dead, like, you know, I blew it. Like, yeah, you know, I, I should have connected you, with him. You see it in his face and in his actions. Like, yeah. Yeah. I also, I just, you know, the, we, we talked a bit already about Buzz being, you know, Buzz Aldrin being portrayed as a bit of a shithead. Um, mm-hmm. But there's that scene after, uh, yeah, I guess after um, Jason Clark has, has died and, and he says, uh, oh no, it's after Patrick Fugit died because, because mm-hmm. Fugit is playing like a, an, a really nerdy character, I, mm-hmm. I, I guess. And, and he says, uh, he basically says to, to Neo, like, you know, you got to admit like he's, you know, he's not aggressive and like sort of implying that like him not being like an alpha male is why he crashed the plane. And, and Armstrong turns to him and says, I didn't investigate the crash. I didn't study the flight trajectory and I wasn't the one flying the plane. So I wouldn't pretend to know anything. (laughs) (laughs) Their, their contentious relationship is so interesting to me. Yeah. I wonder, you know, in like 20 years when we get the Buzz Aldrin movie, what that will be like compared to this. (laughs) Yeah. It's true. I'd be very curious to see what a Buzz Aldrin movie uh, feels like, especially after having seen this. Yeah. And, a movie that ends with an old Buzz Aldrin socking a uh, anti-moon landing, fake moon landing conspiracist in the mouth. <laughs> oh, God, <laughs> again, I, I think we, we mentioned that last week. And again, it is totally worth watching, readily available online. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there's a great Claire Foy moment uh, that I love where it's when um, they're up in the, the Gemini 8 and they, uh, they, you know, it seems like maybe they're going to crash. And they cut the feed to the um, the radio receiver in in uh, in the Armstrong household. So mm-hmm. she drives down to NASA and she like bangs on the door and Kyle Chandler comes out and she, and he's like, "We got it under control." And she's yeah. like, "No, you don't. You're a bunch of boys <laughs> making models out of balsa wood." And I'm like, "Yeah, that <laughs> yep. is so accurate." Like, yeah. <laughs> I can't remember if that was one of the controversial Damien Chazelle Twitter moments of really look at this line. Can you believe this is in a movie? Or oh, if that was one line. of the moments that people like. Yeah, because watching it now, I always have this experience with these like, you know, deranged Twitter moments where if you watch the movie like a few years later, just completely outside of the dialogue and you see the thing and you're like, oh, that was the thing. Like. That was that that bad? <laughs> or, or that was great in this case. Yeah, I, I I, mean, I love that moment because especially like you've spent time with all of them in their, uh, you know, in their training and like in the yeah. spe- in these ships and like when they are, uh, you know, taking off or, or breaking through the atmosphere, like the ships are like screaming, like the the metal yeah. of the of the ships is creaking so much that like it feels like and rattling and it feels like any of them could fall to pieces at any second so like the the accusation she makes there just feels uh so perfectly accurate yeah yeah it's great and uh i mean just the notion that like yeah w- what they're doing it, it might as well be 
just men playing with toys because it, it's just like all theoretical until like they're in space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also, like him going home and being like, "Well, what did you do today at work, honey?" and and him saying like, "Well, I sat on a chair that was spinning like a hundred miles an hour <laughs> in a room, and we all did that like six times and tried not to throw up." Like, oh, cool. That <laughs> that's cool. Well, I took care of your children, so right. <laughs> I lo- I do I mean that's another scene that um almost like it could be an eye of the duck as well because you have you have him voluntarily strapping himself into this like very like scary looking machine so that he can help you know further the the species meanwhile uh you know the film opens with his daughter being like strapped down into yeah. like a, a machine that looks basically the same uh that is you know meant to be trying to save her one life and yeah, and, rough. and and failing yeah. you know uh, so it's it's very it's it's amazing to see him go into that thing and then be like let's just go again you know it's super rough it, it's finally I think occurring to me like what we do on this podcast I think <laughs> it's finally <laughs> really on episode one hundred and two you figured yeah, it out yeah I think I finally understand what we are what we do is I think the reverse of what the film process is. So we start at like the finished product and we basically get it down to the pitch. That's what the end of our episode is. It is. We reverse engineer because now where we're at right now, this is where like Damien Chazelle is at when he talks to Ryan Gosling, right? Like, so I want to do this movie about Neil Armstrong where he is like isolating, you know, himself you know, to mourn the loss of his daughter. He goes to space because he doesn't want to think about his dead kid. Right. And I want to do, you know, X, Y, and Z. Like, you know, I want to shoot it like Gordon Willis and I want to do these three different, you know, formats. Right. It's like we're, we are like reverse engineering it until we reach like its barest, you know, like entry point. And then that's where we end. It's it's so strange. I I, I will say, Dom, you know, I'm, I'm currently writing a film and it's, you know, very different from the films we've been talking about on this show. But I do, as I go through it, I do ask myself, what's the eye of the duck scene? <laughs> what does it mean? Why is it in here? How is it the eye of the duck scene? Like I, I'm, I'm asking myself those questions as I write it and making sure that the film has that kind of complexity to it. Well, I, yeah, I'm, I'm just starting out on a new uh, piece of fiction that I'm working on. And it's the same thing of, not necessarily since I'm I'm not working on a a piece of visual, you know, storytelling, but I am like pretty like consciously being like okay, I can't like sit down and write this until I know all of this stuff that we would talk about on the show <laughs> because if I don't know this shit, then like this isn't going to all link up and right. like you have to have, you know, the theme has to interact with the story and the plot. And it all has to culminate with these little moments that all yeah. like have these, these exchanges between all three. And, uh, <laughs> so, I mean, I, I guess it, I guess the process on our show is not unlike the creative process for anything. Um, we're just, I kind of think we're doing it in reverse. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Anything else you want to say about Damien Chazelle's first man? No, I, uh, I'm, I'm very disappointed in myself that I did not get the 4k Blu-ray 
because going into this one, I was like, I don't know if this is a movie that I need to own. And then I watched it and I was like, ah, oh, motherfucking. It's uh, a movie I needed to own. I gotta say, Dome, it looks pretty fucking good. I'm sure it does. <laughs> Watch it on a horrible uh, streaming network. And yeah, it certainly does I was, not. It was in 4K in my Voodoo Locker. Oh, it's in 4K, but like yeah, but my internet, internet here. Yeah, yeah, I mean, everything about streaming 4K is fake. It has to be. <laughs> even for the most, the highest no, it's speed true. internet. It's true. I mean, how even, could it be, how could it be full on, resolution? Well, it's, it's full resolution, but the bit depth is incredibly low. So you, you, yeah. you miss out on... Uh, on uh on on, on, on a the lot detail of what, yeah yeah it's, and that's what's like that's why you would watch something uh the detail and the color depth and and you know all that like high dynamic range goodness is is nowhere near as as good uh on the streams especially in my fucking internet thanks everyone for listening we want to hear from you tell us about your eye of the duck scenes you can find us on all social media at eye of the duck pod email us at contact if you'd like to join the conversation about movies movie scenes and all things film find an invite link to eye of the discord in our show notes you can find me on twitter at dominic nero or on my website at domnero.com and you can find me on social media at Adam Vol, that's V-O-L-E. And you can watch my films online at adamvolerich.com, that's V-O-L-E-R-I-C-H. The main soundtrack in our episode intro is the recording of Strauss's On the Beautiful Blue Danube that's heard in 2001, A Space Odyssey. The audio cues are pulled from various space movies that we cover in this series. The music you're hearing right now is the recording of Cacciatorian's Gay and A Ballet Suite, also from 2001, A Space Odyssey. And our logo was designed by Francesca Volrich. You can purchase her work at francescavolrich.com slash shop. This episode was edited by Eric Gunnison. Thank you, Eric. Special thanks to Parth Marate for providing research for this episode. Thanks, Parth. Last week, we, we failed to make it to the moon. This week, we, we finally uh, touched down. Uh, but next week... We're going to be uh, hanging out on the moon for a long time. Uh, that's right. We're going to be watching uh, Duncan Jones's Moon uh, from 2009, which you can stream with a subscription to HBO Max or DirecTV, or you can buy or rent from your favorite video on demand platform. And the next time you watch a movie, remember to keep your eye on the duck. My God, it's full of stars. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Eye the Duck early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. If you're listening to this podcast, then chances are good you are a fan of The Strange, Dark, and Mysterious. And if that's true, then you're in luck. Because, once again, Mr. Ballin' Podcast, Strange, Dark, and Mysterious Stories is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Each week on the Mr. Ballin' Podcast, you'll hear new stories about inexplicable encounters, shocking disappearances, true crime cases, and everything in between. Like our recent episode titled White Dust. After a middle-aged couple fail to answer their daughter's messages and calls, the daughter drives the few hours to her parents' house to check on them, 
But after arriving and seeing both her parents' cars in the driveway, the daughter gets an uneasy feeling and just can't stomach going inside. To hear the rest of that story and hear hundreds more stories like it, follow Mr. Ballin Podcast on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Prime members can listen early and ad-free on Amazon Music.